Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. If you think that your average physical therapist has a background in strength and conditioning or even sport in general, you would be wrong. While the enthusiast may permeate the mix, Dr. Carlos Berrio is a bit of an anomaly for the field. Pun intended because his baseball turned BJJ competitive streak puts him in a unique position to get his athletes back to training. He is a vocal proponent for getting PTs more pertinent and well-rounded education and tossing out the old churn and burn therapies of antiquity. Lots of MMA talk and a little blood sport sprinkled in for good measure. Here it is, episode 476. Hey, Power Nation. Hey, okay. John. Hey, are you the, are you the Power Athlete Nation? I have, yes, I, I speak nation for. Award. I speak for Power Athlete Nation to you. Ah, okay. Well, thank you, Power Athlete Nation, for tuning in to another episode of the Premier Podcast of Strength Conditioning. You're welcome, Power Athlete Radio, where not only do we melt faces, we also break hearts and <laughs> provide a ton of information, almost like drinking from a fire hose daily. Yes, and a digestible manner. We bring on some of the best leaders in their respective fields. Oh, and I think the only podcast that might have better guests than us is Joe Rogan. I mean, we'll, we'll, when I look at the... After today's guest, I think we're going to... I don't know. I mean, kick I'm, that door I'm with down. you. Like, when I look at the, at the volume of people that we've had in terms of heavy hitters, man, it's pretty good. It's almost impressive. But we have Mr. Fairfax Hackley to thank for today's guest, Dr. Carlos Barrio. And this is the BJJ physio, the pain Jedi... And he is the coiner of the term next gen PT, and he's on. Mm. He's a man on a mission. No, he's good. I mean, the uh, it, it's always nice when you come across a doc and a you know practitioner who actually does the training in mm-hmm. which he's working with. So he's a jujitsu player, and you know has been doing that for a number of years. So his practical application of what he's doing on the mat is able to translate into working with some high level athletes. And we get we get up, down, and around from specific professional fighting experiences and training all the way down to recreational BJJ player advice and guidance, and for coaches even. So and weight weight classes we get towards the end. So that was pretty. Yeah, we start talking about weight cuts, and then we get into a little bit of. Uh you know, what's the best Van Damme, Seagal, and Ooh, is Steven Seagal really the badass that he thinks he is? Probably not. But uh, we do have some good MMA talks, and uh, as you guys know, I'm, I'm, anything that looks like somebody getting punched in the face, I'm there. And if you are an MMA enthusiast and you're looking for training, look no further than our Grindstone program. A lot of our Block One coaches within our network for their athletes, their MMA athletes, they are su- providing the direction of the Grindstone program for their athletes. If you're training on your own, John, how would you best describe the Grindstone training program provided by Power Athlete? Uh, Grindstone is a malleable, flexible program. So it's really based on a mandatory upper and lower day. Uh, we'll get in there. We're going to hit all of our big movers, all of our big compound movements. We're going to hit a ton of accessory. And those two big strength days are really just that A and B. And then from there, once you complete those two mandatory days, we have a series of optional days that backfill what you want for your training. One's going to be an aerobic day, a glycolytic day. Uh, we alternate with strength days. 
uh, hypertrophy. We got some blood flow restriction training happening right now in the in the programs. So Ooh. it really is kind of based upon you as the individual to kind of choose your own adventure. Once you get done with your strength work, however you want to kind of skin the program. So let's say you are a you know want to be jujitsu player and you're you know rolling four or five days a week. You can fit your mandatory A and B upper lower into your training, and then look to see where you want to cherry pick and backfill with the other days. So. Uh, the program was originally written for you know a good friend of ours, Fortune 500 CEO, who needed a flexible program and needed to be able to kind of move days around. And uh, you know, Grindstone really, when you look at the program, if you were to go check it out on Train Heroic, all the days are li- listed on Monday, mm-hmm. and then it's up to you to kind of pick and choose and kind of drag and drop where you want based off of availability. It's designed for not only people that are you know in season doing fight training. Or, you know, new dads, busy CEOs or dudes that are, you know, working 40, 50 hours a week and just need to have a solid program that's going to be able to provide a good foundation for them. And to learn more about that and all of our training programs, head to powerathletehq.com backslash training. Training. Yep. And you can also check the blog. You can do a Google search on Grindstone. We've been talking about it for years. It's been one of our flagship programs. So I enjoy it. Yes. So let's get into it. Dr. Carlos Barrio, thank you very much for joining us, sir. We really enjoyed this, and I know our listeners will too. At BJJ Physio. Let's do it. Carlos, we were introduced from our mutual pal, Mr. Fairfax Hackley. So shout out out to Hack. Um, I met Hack. Not the Hack, but not a Hack. But the hack. The, the that hack. Is, that is a great way yeah. to describe this. Because as soon as I hear the word hack, all I can think of is Dave Asprey, and uh, <laughs> which is ass prey because he preys upon fucking morons' asses with you know bullshit like bulletproof coffee. That will happen. But uh, anyway, Carlos, I met Hack when I was an undergrad and had my first personal training job. I was an undergrad at Marymount University in which we we share some similar ground. So, Carlos, go ahead and take it away, man. I know your background is very, very robust, and the experience and the the opportunity that we have here today to explore all things movement, MMA, combat sports, up, down, and around. we got a lot to cover today, so take it away. Yeah, man, I'm really excited. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, Really appreciate the time with you all. Um, Yeah, uh, just to touch on Hackman, what a great friend, somebody I've worked with and known for many years, and I'm glad that he's uh, been able to connect us here. But uh, yeah, I'm so excited about some of the questions we're going to cover here. There's a ton to get into, whether you want to go into uh, what the literature says, what our clinical experience is. But if you're a grappler, if you're an MMA guy or, an, or a, a jiu-jitsu gal and you're struggling with some pain, we're going to get to the bottom of a lot of that stuff today. So I'm real stoked. Uh, let's get going. Yeah, man. So give us a, give us a two-minute introduction about how you found combat sports and your, I guess, your elevator pitch in terms of your PTT. PT style. Absolutely. Uh, well, so uh, I played uh, collegiate baseball and uh, coached at uh, the professional level for uh, 12 years. Uh, after my playing career was over, I wanted to figure out something that I could do for a little bit longer, um, maybe a little bit less of a toll uh, from the plyometric and explosiveness side of my uh, physical capability. And I stumbled upon um, jujitsu. Uh, a training partner of mine uh, had tried it out. Uh, this was in let's see, 2006. And so he said, hey, it's just, you know, 
a fun thing. It's kind of like a chess match. Let's, let's see what this is about. And uh, I found that the better I got at it, the less explosive energy I was expending, uh, the less uh, issues I was having with my hips and my knees that were very, very common when I was playing a, a more um, high impact style of a ground reaction force game that baseball is. And, um, you know, my whole style of play was very much throw your body around bunch and run, um, you know, make people pay for letting you on the basis. So I had that attitude about competitiveness and I needed something in my life that would fill that need, uh, but also allow me to do it and play for a long time. Um, one of the things that sort of brings me to here and how it folded into my clinical practice is very commonly I found myself answering questions of training partners and of people from across the country, uh, mostly therapists who were dealing with grapplers on pain that they were having, but they couldn't kind of get to the bottom of because there's a gap as, as um, you guys have asked in some of the questions earlier between what happens when someone gets injured in a sport and then they're trying to translate to a physician, a chiropractor, the physical therapist, like what they're trying to get back to being able to do. And we've already touched on that. An easy answer is we'll just stop doing that. If your neck hurts when you post your head on the ground because someone's trying to pass your guard. Well, stop doing that. What are you doing this for? What's this called? Omo plata what? Um, and that answer is insufficient to anybody who uses jujitsu as their primary um, stress relief exercise or maybe even competition. Um, so we said, well, what can we do? We, because of my experience in uh, jujitsu and MMA and being around professional athletes in that realm, uh, we just have collected such a terrific uh, glossary of ways to help folks like this. And uh, the, the new brand we had created at the BJJ Physio sort of folds together our clinical practice in pain management and return play with the competitive aspect of training uh, a grappling or combat art um, where a physician just tells you to stop or, oh, you just got to throw some medicine at it uh, and then you'll be fine. And, and that's really not an option for a lot of people to just stop training. Um, so this was born and um, kind of folded a lot of what we do together um, to create a, you know, a, a different way of approaching people about how we load and use intensity and plane of movement to get people back on the mat. So what's the concept? I mean, you obviously said there's a different concept. So what's the standard paradigm that you're trying to break? And then more importantly, what is your approach that has become something that is so counterculture and, as you talked about earlier, disruptive? Yeah, no, terrific question. Um, you know, typically, oh, I know. I got lots of them, dude. <laughs> They're going to keep coming at you like fucking, like me shooting your guard over and over bring again. Them, bring them on. Them, I dare you them. to try and pass. Uh, so <laughs> so know, um, uh, I got a bit of a jujitsu background. When I was in high school, the guy that I did stand-up fighting with um, – we used to go out and train at the Gracie place out in Torrance. This is like awesome. early 2000 or early like 92, 93, 94. And we used to go okay. to the, uh, like down on Carson street, like the original spot for the Gracie's was right behind this, uh, all you can eat Japanese food restaurant called Todai. So we used to go there and then we'd go to Todai and then, uh, yeah. So, and then when I was playing in the NFL, I used to go roll with, uh, Eric Apple and Joker and all these cats out awesome. in Orange County. So yeah, no, I, I loved it. It was a lot of fun. That's great. Yeah. Um, you know, what's typically seen, you know, uh, you, you get injured on the mat, uh, you tweak an elbow uh, or your neck, upper quarter injuries are so very common. We call it grappler's neck. Um, and so you'll see a physical therapist who typically doesn't, um, doesn't train. That's sort of common. Most folks don't train. The, the percentages. Why is that? <laughs> no, I mean, I mean the, like, like if you walk into a PT clinic and you meet yeah. a doctor of physical therapy, there's a good chance that they've never touched a barbell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, and this is part of the issue that I have with um, physical therapy education on a whole, uh, anyone who considers himself a movement expert purely by their DPT is 
fucking lying to you. Like, <laughs> they are they are not we we are not trained in normative movement. We are not trained in loading the nervous system. We are not trained in return to sport of almost any kind. You, the, the education is typically in um, optimizing the healing process, which is extremely important. Um, but in most settings, uh, the amount of treatment you can um, uh, give to someone, as in physical amount of time, the amount of tools that are available to you, as in the whether you're using cupping or soft tissue work or dry needling or manipulation, whatever that is, is somewhat dictated by third-party payers. Um, and then even if, you, even if your treatment paradigm as a single physical therapist does fit inside of what an insurance company would be likely to pay for, the amount of time is also the biggest constraint in that seeing three, four, five patients at a time in a typical physical therapy setting is not conducive to answering all of the questions and addressing all of the limitations to being able to do the what we call the soul-filling activity. In this case, it's grappling. And so that uh, is an enormous barrier to people, number one, buying into physical therapy as a, a mode of being able to get back to the mat, and then an enormous barrier to building the trust necessary to get loaded up because you're hurt. You're tentative, you're apprehensive, things are not feeling good. But as soon as we start using the language of jiu-jitsu or the language of Muay Thai, the language of boxing with someone who does that, man, they light up, they immediately buy in. And then they understand at least they're coming to a place where someone understands what they got to go back to. And I, I'm not hamstrung by – well. Blue Cross says we can only do these four things. Like I don't care what Blue Cross says. I mean, that's different. We're an all-cash practice, but saying that is a weird thing. People think I'm greedy. People think our practices that are set up like this are all about the money. It's like, in fact, if I wanted to buy a boat, I would open up a PT mill and see five people at a time and hire therapists until I couldn't get any more therapists in here. So we do it a diamond dance. We've been doing this for more than 12 years now uh, with pretty good results. Frankly, if what we're doing wasn't at least as good, if not better, we would have been out of business a long time ago because you can get what we do for free anywhere around here. Well, can you really? Well, is it free? Paper? That's the question. Well, but, uh, but I mean, here, here, here's the problem is, um, and you've seen this. I mean, this is we run into this with strength coaches and programs and really just anything. The average consumer cannot delineate between the expert and the non-expert. If you got a good sure. sign and some good marketing, then obviously you look like an expert. And we sell this within the CrossFit market. Groupon. <laughs> Where it's like, hey, I got CrossFit <laughs> on the name. I you know, went to my weekend seminar. Two weeks ago, I was in the mortgage business. Now, all of a sudden, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a strength coach. Up yeah. from the person, it's like, no, I've been doing this my whole life. And it's like the average consumer can't delineate. So when they hear, you know, I mean, obviously you have to, I mean, do we have to have insurance in this country? I don't know. I've never really used that. Ask the business owner. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, I, we, I know we that did there was... for a little while. And now we're still arguing whether or not you need it. Yeah, <laughs> like I remember we had to. We got fined and then that went away and it might be kind of... Who knows? But uh, yeah. I'd say most people have some form of insurance. But I know for me personally, um, you know, I had shoulder surgery. I go in and get PT. I would rather pay cash because I can dictate what gets done. Like, hey, this sure. is what I want you to do more so than, hey, this is what insurance will cover. Yeah. So that's a really interesting piece. Like, hey, uh, insurance will cover the manipulation and like the ultrasound, but a manipulation and ultrasound <laughs> isn't what I want. So sure. like I would rather pay cash for it and actually get the modality done that I want. Ice and STEM. Is this high school PT? Oh, uh, dude. I, <laughs> that's, I, yeah, that's as it. <laughs> a, as an NFL player, man, I used to get so fucking sideways with all of our uh, um, what I called ankle tapers and on uh, all the PTs <laughs> and people, all the ATCs, because I was like, dude, this is all you guys got. You got ice and STEM and ultrasound. That's it. 
Like yep. there has to be more than this, this, you know, so like uh, osteopaths, chiropractic, you know, I, I started kind of researching this and I was like, dude, this, this feels like a, a broken model. And yeah. Yeah. There's an interesting parallel between what happens in what we call the PT mill, which is kind of what we're describing right now, and what happens in professional sports. Physical therapists like me, uh, especially the young ones, they, they will routinely say, I want to work with elite athletes. And what they are likely thinking in their head is of the training room in the NFL where they can work with people who are highly motivated, very strong, uh, capable. Um, and the fact is that the bureaucracy that plagues PT Mills is actually somewhat worse in the NFL because there are so – in all, I would say all professional sports. But the NFL sure. will use this as an example because in that setting, you've got different spokes of a similar physical medicine wheel, all kind of trying to be the top dog, which is odd to me. Um, ATCs think they have it better than rehab. Rehab thinks they know it better than the sport, the, the on-staff uh, doc. Uh, and then the doc says, you're all idiots. And then there's a surgeon who is a specialty surgeon outside of here who's talking about about all of you, like someone, uh, you know, Dr. J. Andrews is a great example. He's yeah. a he's a head guy at the Redskins, but if you've got an elbow or shoulder and you play baseball in with the Dodgers, you're coming across the country to see this dude. And no one on the Dodgers staff likes to hear you're going to see Dr. Andrews. But are you going to argue? I mean, yeah. he's his his track record is somewhat proven. So um, there's all that infighting that happens, at least in the physical therapy realm of the real world or the regular world. It's only third party payment and the will, the need to make more dollars, the need to have more units in the facility that drives that bureaucracy and ultimately just limits the amount of time. So things like ultrasound, stim, heat, they work well to drive revenue because – I can drop this on you and I can go over here and I can do it to you and I can do it to this guy over here. And at all the while, those units are just ticking away. And that's terrific. And that is part of how this mill setting, how many people can we get in and what is the minimum amount of effort, work, treatment we can give that might provide maybe via the evidence, evidence-based uh, practice, um, some relief. And that's great. But most times, like you're saying, leaves people wanting for attention, wanting for more personalized treatments, wanting for more understanding of what I got to get back to. Because, again, your insurance company doesn't care if you can throw a football. Yeah. If you can stand up, they're done. And that's terrific. First question I ever ask is, what do we want to get back to being able to do? Like, are you a pole vaulter? Okay, then we start backwards from there. Where are we right now? Not – it just hurts when I walk down the stairs because everyone, you know, feels great when they're lying flat on their back looking up at the fluorescent lights. When you get them up and load them, that's when you're going to figure out where you're at. Well, you also missed another interesting element that people forget about that a lot of times the team docs for NFL teams and many of the teams, they actually pay to be the team doc. So when I was at the Philadelphia sure, sure. Eagles, um, you know, Novacare and, and whoever our yep. team doctor was, he wrote a big check to have the honor of being the Eagles doc because it drove business. So right. when I hurt my knee, it wasn't him who I was going to see. I was flying out to see Stedman, uh, Dr. Stedman, who's in Colorado. Yep. You're yep. like in the NFL, you're, you were either a steady guy or an Andrews guy. And now the mm-hmm. city's retired. Now you got to go to Andrews. Um, yeah. But, you know, like if it's your career on the line, you're going to go out and find your gunfighter. You're not going with the county sheriff who is being yes. paid to be there. So yep. that was the analogy whenever people be like, oh, what do you think? I'm like, dude, go find the best gunfighter you can. And if this is the best gunfighter for your injury, go find him. Yeah, I, and in our experience with players, uh, both current and former NFL, the ones that stick around the league are the ones who are doing what you just said. They are on the lookout constantly for the people they can stick in their corner that makes their 
physical experience as good as it can be. And don't just only take what the team offers, only work out when the team says you got to work out. They are working at it all the time. And that's the stuff you got to just, you, know, you tip your hat to guys like that. And it's not a surprise. They stick around the league more than just a couple of years and you know, buy their two cars and a house, you know. Is, is that the mindset of a professional fighter? For the most part, I, I have uh, little you, knowledge you know of what? that. That's ah. a bad I, I'm, I'm pretty interested because, uh, um, dude, I've, I've, I've been a fan of the UFC. Like, I, I, like I remember, uh, like, I, I grew up a boxing fan, and I had visions when I was younger of being a professional boxer. And then when I was about 14 years old, I got in the ring and realized it was a lot easier to, to make money wearing a football helmet than it would be. <laughs> so I've told these guys a story. I got in the ring with a kid who was about my size. I was six foot 165 when I was 14. And I got in the, in the ring with a guy about my similar size, but I think he was probably like 150-something. Uh, but he was 18, and he hit me with this, like, overhand right and basically fucking almost knocked me out, split my eye open. And I remember thinking, like, I'm going to go play football. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was a lot easier. But uh, I, I grew up a boxing fan, and, like, I mean, still to this day, I'll go back and watch, like, you know, Marvis Marvin, Marvin Hagler and Sugar Ray Leonard and some of those older fights, man, like, uh, so amazing. But then when I saw the USC or UFC come in, I was like, man, this is going to revolutionize. And those original fighters, you know, the Gracies and the Ken Shamrocks, like now you're seeing such a, like a, such a much more sophisticated, like blending with like Conor McGregor and just these guys of like them taking like the boxing game and moving it over to the UFC and just getting these huge paydays, which I think is well-deserved. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. Uh, to touch on the first part of your question, um, what we're seeing is a big difference between uh, promotions. Um, some promotions, uh, and without advertising one or another or saying one's better than the other, um, provide some of that, right? They provide treatment. They provide training facilities. They provide supplementation. They, they are looking out for their folks in, in one way, and other promotions don't. Um, and the ones... Uh, the, to, to touch on the question, the ones that really want to stick with this, the ones that really want to push themselves to uh, a different place than a lot of their competitors do exactly that. They're constantly looking out for that person they can have on their team. Um, uh, but frankly, it's not only for the pros. I mean, I see a lot of amateur fighters in this area who are trying to do the same thing. Um, and at least in that way, they're not tied to a certain set of practitioners. You know, they can say, well, I, I want this chiro, I want this nutritionist, I want this physical therapist or whatever. Um, and so the good ones are doing that. And you know, that we're constantly trying to just put into the ear that, look, this is if this is something you're serious about, this is the kind of team you need to develop, uh, the kind of coaches and the kind of rapport you have to have with everyone that can kind of uh, perform a, a cohesive kind of approach. Uh, and so, yeah, we're seeing more and more of that. Um, and it seems to be happening from the amateur level up. Guys who are really getting serious, they're putting these teams together and they're winding up on the promotions and you're going to know their names, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, it's really an interesting shift to watch. Where are you based out of? Uh, we're in Arle uh, in Alexandria, Virginia, so Northern Virginia, and we see people from anywhere between, you know, D.C. all the way to Richmond. Uh, are are there um, uh, a bunch of like fight camps? I mean, like I I know that the like uh, fighters tend to gravitate towards other fighters and sure. go to these little pockets. Like I know they're in Vegas, and you know Austin's uh, growing big. Austin's growing big. Tenth planet. Here. Um, yeah, Sacramento. Um, mm -hmm. You know, with, uh, um, yeah, I mean, just, just different guys kind of end up kind of moving into different areas to, so they're in a constant kind of fight training environment. Is that something that you guys see a lot in your, in your neighborhood or do, are people flying in to see you or? We are seeing that. There's probably three main fight teams in the area uh, for Emmys uh, right now. Um, 
folks who uh, fight in the big promotions like one and Bellator uh, happen to just fly all over the place. So the ones who are getting serious, and we have several, we have several Bellator fighters um, who come in when they get dinged up uh, and then sort of just disappear. And so, again, it's our understanding of our position on their team. You know, we are going to handle things when they get sort of outside of the scope of ex-practitioner. And I'm totally fine with that. And we work together. We will communicate with those folks. Um, but it is a mix. And this area, I would say, is up and coming. Um, you know, it's probably, um, let's see here, of all the folks we've got, there's probably three or four names, unfortunately, I can't mention now because of the kinds of things we do, um, that are that you know. Um, and so we're always happy to work with them, and, and one day I'll be in a corner somewhere, and then I can say their name. <laughs> nice, nice. What's, um, if you could go design, like I always think on this, like what's like the perfect, and I guess there is no perfect, but like uh, if you could think about like a guy prepping, like let's say there's you know, 13, 14 year old kid listen to this podcast. Like what is his training look like building up into being a UFC fighter? Is it like a high school wrestler that learns some stand up and oh, then all of a sudden gets yeah. in there and learns in some jujitsu? Like what's the foundation? I, I feel like the guys that at least I really enjoy watching have some form of wrestling background and then all of a sudden start putting the other pieces of their game together. Uh, yeah. Opposed from like a guy who's like a stand up boxer and all of a sudden gets in there and, you know, wants to keep on his feet and then gets taken down and just gets fucking murdered. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think um, th- starting from the ground seems to be the trend right now. I would actually recommend that because as a lifelong mode of training, it it instills in people a kind of work that doesn't happen in a lot of other sports. I mean, so we've got guys here uh, who are fighting now professionally who started as the cross players, started as baseball players. And it's like, okay, well, I'm an athlete. It's like, okay, terrific. But you've taken – an important part of your development in this 10 years of being an adolescent and focused on a ground reaction sport. Well, that does translate nicely to punching and kicking, but that has nothing to do with what happens when you're on your back or when you've mounted someone and trying to maintain control and wrestling as a base. And then very loosely connected jujitsu as a base are two terrific places to begin. What you're likely seeing as well as us is the people who get to the highest level. We saw it last weekend. Um, when um, oh goodness, why am I blinking on the name? But we had a top, top, top level jujitsu player, and then some young guy who was like a purple belt someplace, and he gets choked out. And it's like, wait a second, this is an apex jujitsu predator in a MMA setting, gets choked out because all of a sudden you could punch someone in the mouth. That changes your skill level. Um, and so some of the pros that we're seeing come up now actually start from the let's say the Muay Thai kickboxing kind of setup, but then really place a high priority on refining their skills in being pre- in preventing takedowns and getting up once taken down. They may not perfect jiu-jitsu. They may not ever want to be in a black belt, um, but those guys that see the, the need to not just, well, I'm just going to punch you. You're going to shoot. I'm just going to, okay, I'm going to Derek Lewis, everybody. Like yeah. that doesn't happen often. Um, even some, you know, somebody, hey, what do you think about that, that fight? I'm like, I hate the outcome because I mean, frankly, one of the three of us probably has a snowball's chance in hell of landing that same uppercut on a shot. Sure. Now, I'm probably not knocking anybody out like that, but Derek Lewis certainly has the power to do so. Um, he's but again, a funny dude, man. He's hysterical. Terrific yeah, he's Instagram follow. Funny, follower. funny dude. No, I, Terrific I like follow. him. Yeah, I, I dig his whole thing. Um, but it's if you have some striking ability and then understand if you want to take it to that level in MMA, you got to focus on some of the ground game. 
you're better off. But I think, like you'd said, if you can begin with wrestling or begin with some base that provides um, symmetrical movement, uh, movement in many directions, uh, power in a lot of directions, and that, that motor, that seems to be a very big piece that is lacking in people who are primarily strikers. So it, it, it kind of flip-flops because you remember like Ronda Rousey came in and was murdering everybody with her, yeah. you know, I mean, s- serious judo player. And then she comes out there and Holly Holmes just ends up lighting her up as a boxer. And yeah. you're like... Well, I mean, there's something to be said about taking a punch. I mean, that was the one thing that you learned pretty early on in boxing and fighting and stuff. You like you learn that, hey, man, like one, I can take a punch. Now, do I like taking punches? Now it's something a little bit different. It, sure. it, it was a, a wave, a trend that I noticed and observe in other sports too. different offenses in the in the collegiate and NFL setting for football different waves of style that we're seeing in basketball. Now it's more of a three-point league, but it's shifting back to the center. So that's the beauty of sport and athleticism. You see these waves and evolution versus the sport of exercising. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, Conor McGregor did a great job. I mean, he's a good jiu-jitsu player. And, um, I mean, he's good. And then all of a sudden he gets out there and he starts boxing against uh, Floyd Mayweather, which was, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I paid the money for it. It was fucking awful. Uh, entertaining is the word that comes to mind yeah but for a weird reason (laughs) yeah no well it it was because like the shit talking was legendary like like his ability to get under uh, mayweather's skin was like something i'd never seen the outfits the way he was strutting and the whole deal i loved it i love the showmanship but uh you get him out there and you're like dude this is probably you know you gotta put him in the markets part one of the best ever to fight the game Yes. In terms of defense, I mean, he goes in and like you'll look and he'll be like, he landed, you know, 300 punches and his opponent landed seven. I mean, he doesn't get hit. And it was just like yep. you're watching it. And it was a great play by McGregor because he got a huge payday out of it. Sure. Uh, you know, it puts him on a different level. But like, man, it's so interesting. Like people have always asked me, they're like, oh, in a fight, you know, jujitsu, you know, this football and all that. I'm like an amateur boxer in like a street fight will fuck up most people. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, you know, unless it's like, you know, and, and then it ends up on the ground. And he doesn't know what to do. So I always think that, like, there has to be an interesting balance. And I wonder, uh, as you're going in and working with these guys and doing their PT and developing them, like, how do you make sure that they stay well-rounded? Or is it something where, hey, this is my wheelhouse and I just got to be proficient in this other shit? Yeah, uh, people always go back to what they feel most comfortable in. Um, you know, it, it, I am not a striking coach. I am not a jujitsu coach. I play the game. Uh, I would consider myself an enthusiast. I've competed. Um, so I can put myself in the, in the mindset of someone who wants to get back to that level. But um, with my main concern is do you have access to all the places of movement that are required for your game? So if you're a ground guy, man – you better have super mobile hips. You better have a very strong axial skeleton. Like you better be hard to squeeze down like a Coke can. Um, if you are uh, primarily a striker, you better have a lot of that quick twitch kind of hip shoulder dissociation. Um, but that's stuff that they come with. And what will happen typically is, all right, I was training or I'm in a camp and I was working on something and I no longer can achieve X motion. All right, well, let's get to get to the bottom of what happened here. What did we what do we tweak? How do we continue training? How do we set you up so that you don't miss part of your camp, but also allow for optimal healing of this area or this plane of motion? So that's really my concern. Um, but we always have to take into account, like, well, where are you best? And let's make sure that stays um, honed during your your course of care. And the other thing, too, is because we're also strength and conditioning experts, um, we handle a lot of 
fighter's actual conditioning. Uh, and so we can, we can do a little bit more than what I would say a typical you know, PT uh, can do when it comes to getting these guys ready for, um, ready for a fight. Now, uh, how do you balance it? I mean, I, I know as they probably get more towards a fight camp, you know, mm-hmm. and then they're all of a sudden now they're in their kind of SPP specific training, yep. but kind of in their off season buildup, like, uh, is there a, you know, kind of a, a thirds kind of a deal, like a third on the ground, third stand up, third within the weight room? Like, how do you balance that volume and make sure that they're, you know, developing their skills, but not at the expense of like conditioning and strength and speed and all that other stuff? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a question about periodization, which is very typical. Uh, if you've done athletics, you understand um, that you're not going to do the same thing in August as a football player, getting ready for camp or being in camp or getting ready for the preseason as you would in February. Your training is going to change. Your uh, loading, your planes are going to change. And so that balance that happens over the course of a 12 10 week camp uh, really uh, is about getting quick twitch, fast rotation as we get close. And then there's about that two week where we're really worried about weight. Um, uh, and so before that, we can load. And before fight camps even begin, we're really primarily trying to regenerate tissue, as in just improve healing overall, increase tissue mobility, and th- thicken the layer of strength so that when it comes time to get fast, get explosive, you've got somewhere to pull from. Most athletes that deal with injuries, especially chronically, like I'm always hurting my back or something, um, are trying to do the speed, agility, power thing, but have neglected the grab a bar, pull something heavy, and do it again. Recover, eat, sleep, repeat. Um, And so those folks were constantly kind of taped together, you know, keeping them moving around. Uh, But as we go, there there is a plan toward fight day or fight three weeks um, where we're revving up speed, revving up rotation, and then really trying to not step on the toes of striking coaches who really want, you know, extra time in the sauna or running. So with it, um, so you're a big proponent of lifting heavy weights with these guys? At, at certain times, absolutely. You, everyone who is a competitive athlete has to have a phase where they are loaded up heavily. Uh, we're seeing more and more of it in in combat sports. Uh, actually, very specifically in jiu-jitsu, as um, pro jiu-jitsu becomes more popular, um, you're seeing guys show up very big and very strong. And it is not from from rolling solo. Uh-huh. Um, now, there might be other things at play there when it comes to how big <laughs> some of these guys are. I will not get into any details about that. However, um, the importance of being stronger with someone who is similarly weighted and similarly skilled – is unquestionable. Um, you know, jujitsu is one of those great things, and MMA. You know, like you've seen recently with the what was it like an Ohio? No, no, an Oklahoma State kid that yeah. pushed around some <laughs> some kid in the oh, bathroom. Oh yeah, it was the um, uh, Oklahoma State football player just got fucking. I don't know if it was OSU, but oh, oh maybe it was OSU. OU. It was yeah. an OU, OU player. Yeah, he and, was like, uh, a, is, what, was he a backup quarterback? Maybe place? No, no. I th- I, I, what I read was a receiver and some special and a special teams okay. guy. Okay, and I. Look, that's really hard to do. Play college football is difficult. That does not make you even even toughness with somebody who is a skilled martial yeah. artist of any kind. And if you watched five seconds of that video, you know that dude knew what he was doing. Yeah. <laughs> it was real clear. Um, and this is a great example of it, though. Well, you see, got he got him in a rear naked like within seconds. Seconds. Like, I, I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> the, the first thing you never do, or at least in a street fight, is you never give up your back. 
And like, if you got to gouge an eye to not give up your back, you basically bite off a finger, gouge an eye, do whatever you got to, you don't give up your back. And literally yeah. he gave his back and the kid had him with the hooks in, in the rear naked. And I was like, yeah. Oh God. I'm like, well, I watched the video the other day. <laughs> I just, I was like, Holy shit, dude. Either that yeah. kid's never been in a fight. I, and, and he probably never had. You're exactly right about that. That's just it. God, I love it. No, it was great. I, I've watched that video so many times. It's, it is heartwarming. I don't like seeing anybody get pounded, but he was the jerk yeah, aggressor. He was fearing a freaking bully. And, you know, like you said, he'd probably never been in a real fight because, oh, you're tall and you're, you're on the football team. I'll just back up. And I love the composure. The guy, I was watching it from more of a self-defense perspective at some point, too. I love that this conversation has gone here, by the way. Uh, he had his hands in front of him. He had the whole very uh, calm but ready demeanor that you would expect somebody who has been here before and and like we were saying um that is a very big difference in size and strength i'm sure that guy was giving up weight and he was definitely giving up reach but it didn't matter but when you got like-sized people and like-skilled people the stronger faster more mobile guy has a very big advantage and so um that's some of the stuff that we can use to show people like hey man time between camps should be spent thickening this layer of strength, getting robust joints, getting strong um, to prevent injury on one side, but also to have something to pull from when it's time to ramp it up and turn this into a speed thing. Because if you lift heavy, well, you're your body to move relatively slow. Well, it's an overspeed training as you approach a camp or as you go through a camp, and now you're telling your brain, this is how fast we want to go. This is how our hands got to move through space. And so um, it's about blending that together, and it's all about periodizing it to match up when we got to weigh in, when we got to fight. So what, uh, like, what's in your tool bag? I mean, is it something like, because, I mean, uh, it's pretty interesting. Like if, uh, like I was just out at a, seeing a doc, uh, one of the docs who used to do just a bunch of laser in Graston. He was at uh, a Cairo out in uh, Orange County. Um, yep. used to train at our gym and now he's big into stem cells. So I, I stopped by his office and was kind of seeing what he was up to. And man, he had like all these different like shockwave machines. I mean, it was pretty amazing to see like he uh, had this bitching in Deba one where it like puts uh, sound like, I mean, it was like next level stuff. I'm like, I never heard of any of this stuff. Cool. So like how, yeah, I thought it was super neat. Like, Hey, like here's the research, here's a practical application. Mm -hmm. Like what's in your tool bag? Like when somebody comes in, like, where do you start? How do you progress them? How do you decide like where to go? And more importantly, like, what do you have available? Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're primarily, uh, we consider a manual therapy practice. Uh, we do have, hot and cold packs like places do. We just don't use them super often. We do have stim units. We just don't use them unless the case specifically indicates that the evidence says this would assist you. Primarily for our, for uh, eval, which I think is the most important bit, is we have a very specific um, structured set of movements we move people through to see where what layers of the cake we're going to be working on. Are we missing rotation? Are we missing flexion? Are we missing single leg stability, power, or whatever? And then uh, we've got, you know, we, we grasped in we manipulate, we'll mobilize, we use dry needling, we'll use uh, PNF techniques. Um, but primarily, I tell everybody that the goal of treatment here is to get you off of this table and up to a place where I can load you in a plane that makes sense for what you want to go back to be able to do. Mm -hmm. And so I lean heavily on my experience as a strength and conditioning coach and a, a sports skills coach um, to get that side of the things going. Um, if you are on your back getting needled or manipulated for – I don't know, the majority of treatment, what are you even doing? I mean, what, what are we even here for? This, again, is not a place where people hurt. Um, 
you know, lying down without tension through their body. So um, primarily for uh, for pain, we'll use a bunch of different techniques, but a lot of it is just to get you up. And some people want to say, you know, nips don't work or needling doesn't work or you can't prove this or the other. Frankly, if you don't have something along the spectrum of the soft tissue to loading continuum of treatment for each case, it's hard to get buy-in. It's hard to, you know, some people really love dry needling. Some people really love cold laser. Some people really think the hot pack and the stim is the way to go. Um, and so that's another thing that as, a, as someone seeing just one person at a time, I can cater um, their care toward what they really think will work. Like you had said, like, well, this is what I think works for me. And this is what I want to be go back and be able to do again. And so we use all that context um, to get people to buy in and push them along. Um, so we've got all the tools everyone's got. Um, the other thing too, we don't have ultrasound. Now, the reason yeah. we, have, we don't have ultrasound is no, it just doesn't do shit. <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> but but um, similarly with things like laser, if you read the literature, which I, uh, you know, I tell people that people don't come in here for my opinion. They want to know what works for them. They don't want to, they want to guess at what's going on or talk about their gallbladder points, which some people like. That's terrific. Um, there's other places for that. But when a modality provides – let's say tissue heating or uh, perfusion of an area, but movement would provide that plus more, I'm going to go to movement. You get ultrasound. If you look at just the literature on how, the, how deep penetration typically occurs between three and five millimeters, well, if you're talking about somebody your size, that's a very different treatment uh, than it is somebody my size. However, I'm heavy on get them up. And so if I've got to spend even if it works for you, eight minutes doing this thing. But in that eight minutes, I can get you moving for four of those minutes and have, have deeper tissue perfusion, have better blood flow, improve your mobility of this joint. Why would I, why am I having you on your back? Get you up. So always making the decision based on, um, well, is lying here generalizable to your sport or is getting up and moving around generalizable? And that's why we always kind of go towards that versus things like laser and ultrasound. Although those do have some applications in some places. What are the like most common injuries? I mean, is it somewhere, no. you know, if guys are coming in an MMA, like the majority of guys are kind of within that bucket or is it just like a little bit of everything? And can we delineate the, the recreational MMA BJJ player versus the, the professional dedicated sure. athlete? Yeah, absolutely. So the first question um, about uh, what we're commonly seeing, uh, we've actually made up a, a term, grappler's neck. Um, essentially, uh, we get uh, – if you're, if you're in MMA, you're wearing contact to your head, and you're probably not loosely wearing contact to your head. You're actually tensing up all the muscles of your upper quarter. Uh, if you're in jiu-jitsu or actually training MMA to fight, you're mixing these two things together. And so spending time posting on your head or having somebody pushing on your head creates a lot of shearing. And that's a very common thing for people to come in here with um, or need to have advice about like, okay, I have strained my neck. What do I do now? So grappler's neck is probably one of the most common. And then similarly, like as in similar plane, but just a different part of the body is that kind of paraspinal ribs, hips, trunk deal, which is sort of the grappler's neck of the lower body because it's all this shearing that happens with the high amounts of rotary power we're doing, we're punching, we're kicking. And most times it's in camps where we're like working on a skill, like and we're working on one thing, we beat it up and beat it up and beat it up. And then they go like, man, my hip just can't rotate right now. It's like, okay, well, what's going on? We get to the bottom of it. Like, oh, you did this many reps of this skill and you're, it was a little too much, too much, too fast, too soon. Let's come back. 
let's talk to coach. We're going to, we're going to back off this one skill for 10 days. We're going to treat it on this side uh, and then cut them loose again. So there's a constant um, going back and forth to make sure that we're again we're not stopping training. That's what people typically hear. Like, Oh, well then just stop. You'll be fine. Um, and addressing sort of the most typical things which is these rotary trunk issues uh, that we're seeing. And that folds nicely into the question you had text about um, whether it's recreational athletes or competitive ones that are getting this. Um, I would say that the recreational ones are probably coming in with these kinds of things more because they're the ones still searching for team members for people to like, well, who do I call? Which is good. I mean, I'd, I'd rather someone have someone and not call me than not have someone at all. Um, and we're seeing a swing of the pendulum towards, towards the competitive side. Even if you're just an enthusiast, everyone looks up to Gordon Ryan and Leandro Lowe and, and recognizes these guys have teams. These guys are not just rolling all the time. Um, they have people that they go to, and you can see that on their Instagram, and you can see that on all their socials, that they're getting that work in. And so me, as a 40-some-year-old enthusiast who might compete once in a while, if I want to achieve some of the Criterion Movers' success, I better do some of what the Criterion Movers are doing or I'm just crazy. This is not going to work. Um, so the severity of injuries, I would say, is a little bit worse on the enthusiast side, um, but they're very similar in the kinds of things they get hurt, the grappler's neck, those back injuries from shearing, and just getting stuck in positions that, that are sort of new to people. And speaking of rec athletes doing what pros doing, <laughs> uh, there's a couple guys, Max Holloway and Robbie Lawyer, that don't spar in training mm -hmm. anymore. So like if, is it a good idea now for the rec to start to follow everything that the, the pro community <laughs> is doing? Yeah, that's a good one. I don't know that that would apply. Um, but the enthusiast is doing it. I mean, for whatever reasons there are, uh, you know, you hear, uh, well, I, I want to stay in shape. Uh, I want to be more confident in a self-defense scenario. Um, you know, it's a cool community. Okay, great. Well, don't stop sparring. Like you should spar. Um, if you've trained jujitsu, <laughs> you know there's like a warm up, and then you drill something, and then you simulate murder, and that's <laughs> the game. That's kind of the fun part. Uh, you know, me, I'm not the youngest guy, but I'm certainly not. Uh, I'm not limited by a lot of pain. But even still, like if I tweak something, hey, I'll tell my training partner, look, my elbow's jacked up. I got stuck in something the other day, and so you you try to use your training partners to help you with that. But you don't want to stop sparring. In the case of a pro, they've had enough of that contact. And you're seeing this in other sports, you're seeing this in mm -hmm. football, you're seeing this a lot of, well, football we consider a collision sport, but you're seeing it in a lot of contact sports where they're limiting the contact where it's sort of necessary. Uh, somebody like Robbie Lawler, who's a great case, I mean, what a tough fighter. I love watching him. Um, I don't know when he began the I'm not going to spar or I'm not going to take uh, head contact, um, but it's hard to compare him to Max Holloway. Max Holloway's 10 or 11 years younger, um, different style, totally different style of fighter, um, and have had different success in the last half dozen fights, both of them. So um, I would encourage the competitive athlete who's in the MMA side of things to think about less contact with their head, try and uh, understand what's necessary uh, to get ready for a fight. Um, but at people's level like Max and Robbie's, <laughs> I don't think they need more head hits. Uh, every time you take a shot, every time your bell gets rung, it's easier according to the evidence, to get your bell rung again. So use those bullets in, in the octagon, in the ring, in competition. Um, 
if you're an enthusiast, man, go after it and just make sure someone's in your corner for when you feel like, nah, I got hurt and I need a little bit of help. Well, I mean, um, in, uh, in like the recreational jiu-jitsu situation, like, um, you know, as you're rolling and basically, you know, just looking for submissions, a lot of dudes aren't taking big bombs to the face and to the head. Sure. Sure, you know, sure. But then, you know, so like there's not really that issue. But when they get out into like a UFC kind of a, you know, professional fighting where it's mixed martial arts, like there's going to be a lot of headshots. And I wonder, um, man, like I, I heard this years ago and I always uh, I'd like uh, one of the boxing guys I worked with made a good point. He's like, you know, every boxer has only so many hits in them. Yep. And he's like, you know, some guys can, you know, take 20 years worth of hits. Other guys can take, you know, a week's worth of hits. And you don't sure. really know until you get out there. And, you know, same in the NFL. I played with guys that, um, you know, had serious problems within year one or two. And I know guys that played 17 years that don't have problems. And right. I have other guys that played 10 as long as I did who were, you know, certifiably insane. And, you know, you have friends that are killing themselves. So it's pretty interesting, <sighs> especially in the same in the MMA deal. Where, you know, you look and you're like, you know, are there compounding issues? Like if everybody's taking the same hits and the same deal, why are some guys going down this dark path and other guys are going into this way? Yeah, um, you're, that's actually very common in a lot of sports that require uh, sort of angular velocity and contact and power. Um, I, I talk to parents a lot about this. Not so much parents that want to see their kids in MMA, but parents who have a kid who plays baseball or something like that. And I use a similar analogy that you've got a certain number of explosive movements in your body. It's sort of preset. And unfortunately, what parents don't like to hear, and athletes only like to hear it a little bit less, is that injury weeds out a lot of people. And what you're describing is the sort of robustness of different segments of everyone's body, whether it's your head's ability to take a shot or your shoulder's ability to undergo that kind of angular velocity and throw in a baseball. Um, You have a finite amount of that, call it like your movement account. And every time you move, you spend some movement dollars. Lifting, getting coached, having good nutrition, getting good sleep, being physically prepared, those are things that add to your movement account. But you're always going to tick away at that account with every motion. And what makes it so that someone can play 17 years in the NFL smashing a defensive lineman in the mouth 70 times a game versus someone who flames out after two years? Man, that's tough. If we could study that, that would be terrific. We give everybody a pill, and now all of a sudden everyone can wear all that contact and have that bounce back. But it's not for everyone, and sometimes you sort of have to get into it before you realize I was on the shit end of that stick. I mean, it's just the way it is sometimes. Is um, you know, I mean, uh, you, you alluded to some performance-enhancing drugs earlier, but uh, oh. is um, I mean, we we obviously know that's uh, prevalent in the sport. But are like uh, opiates, alcohol, like are people self-medicating in such a way, and has that become an issue? Because I'm sure, as a physical therapist, you're in there working with people, and you can feel that shit in their tissue. Like I I, I know yeah. um, this is purely observational, but I remember one of our uh, ATCs made an interesting point on a guy. He's like, you know, that guy takes a lot of stuff. I'm like, what do you mean takes a lot of stuff? He's like, he's on a lot of shit because his tissue quality is so shitty. Mm-hmm. Like when you go work on it, he's like, I can go feel, I, I know when tissue feels healthy, hydrated and fresh, when it starts feeling like beef jerky and you're just going mm-hmm. through it, you're like, holy shit, what's going on in this guy? Yeah. Yeah. Um, fortunately, uh, on the enthusiast side, that's not uh, as prevalent an issue. Uh, and everyone that we have thus far worked for is uh, doesn't really have issues with uh, performance enhancement. But pain management from the side of uh, opioid abuse, we've had we've had people um, have issues with that. Uh, we do our best to provide resources, um, but also give them the understanding that there are movement approaches to mitigating pain. 
that would likely decrease someone's need for this kind of treatment for themselves. Um, very commonly, we see alcohol abuse in the same exact used in the same exact manner. People go, "Well, I don't want to take Percocets because they're going to wreck me and I'm going to get addicted, so I'll just drink a fifth of freaking something crazy, and that'll that'll make me feel good." It's like, well, <laughs> good is one Did way. Did it really? It. Did it really make you feel <laughs> Re- good? Good isn't the way I would put it, but yo, know, it take it takes the edge off the pain, um, and so it does require a, a skilled approach because. Uh, that's just a dark place for a lot of people. And uh, anytime we can spend some time providing education on other ways to get pain down, um, we will spend that time. But fortunately for my career and fortunately for the people that we're seeing, um, people are taking uh, taking our advice to heart and uh, using the movement, using loading uh, as their primary way to mitigate their pain. But uh, it is a problem, and I, I hope we can eliminate that soon. So can, can you d- dive into that? Like, uh, what's the movement philosophy to reducing pain? I mean, is it something with its loading or is it, uh, you know, acupuncture, dry needling? Like, I'm just wondering, like, what is, uh, if somebody comes in and they're in pain, how do you relax the nervous system in such a way? Cause pain is just a, um, you know, an output, you know, sure. the body has an issue. It's putting out mm-hmm. this output. How do you calm yeah. that down? Yeah. Uh, we have like an acronym we use around here called it's uh, it's launch. Right. And so one of the first things that we do is listen. It's something that, Unfortunately, in a lot of physical therapy settings, it's not possible. There's not enough time. And people don't have the experience from the, on their own, either grabbing a barbell or doing something competitive, to fully unpack what's going on here. But once we understand sort of where you want to go, so if you're an MMA guy, I already have an idea about the kind of mobility you need. Then we have to acknowledge the issues that are going on and unpack the problems that you're, you're bringing to me. A lot of times people come in and say, I read on Google – this is my issue. You know, the internet is great for finding problems. I'm, I'm actually not a problem guy. I'm a solutions person. Like, what is the issue? I can give you a name for this, but who the fuck cares? What are we going to do to get you out of it? So once we've listened and acknowledged and unpacked the issue, we're going to challenge the system. I know your hip has to rotate this much. Let me show you where you're limited there. Oh, wow. I'm supposed to have X range of motion in my hips? Yes, that would be optimal so that you can maintain your half guard, so that you can work the knee shield, so that you can hit a a high crotch takedown. Like you need this motion. And when we show someone, shit, you're missing 20 degrees of internal rotation with your hip and extension. That is the first light bulb. They go, well, wait, no one's ever told me a specific objectifiable number I can reach to get me out of pain. Because what's happening if you can't get there, your body your joint gets wound up as far as it can go. It's sort of stuck. Now your back has to rotate in order to get the rotation necessary for that motion. Why in the world is your back doing the work that your hip should be doing? That happens all the time. When you've told someone that, they go, all right, so you're telling me if I can just get this 20 degrees or get this amount of power out of this hip, my back doesn't have to hurt anymore? Well, that would make mechanical sense. That's not even a hard parallel to draw. And so that bit of understanding what they've got to get back to being able to do and then how to manipulate a joint to, let's say, get some extra range of motion. That may be via dry needle. That may be via manipulation. Um, And then you retest immediately. I don't do anything that we can't measure a change near right now. Uh, It's actually kind of rare where someone comes in in pain and then they leave with pain. They you know, we, we have a pretty good track record of saying like, look, you've gained five degrees, you've gained 10 degrees. uh, Now it's got to stick. How do we get it to stick? Well, we got to load it. We got to put your body in that end range of motion and then put weight through it so that your body goes, oh, yes, I remember we have these 20 degrees. 
Let's use those 20 degrees because the longer you go with pain, the more people become apprehensive about moving towards that painful place. And then that becomes the new range of motion, even though they actually have that in there. There's a question about whether flexibility or stability is a priority. Well, this is sort of that thing. If I put you on your belly and I rotate your hip internally, as in if you're on your tummy and I take your right leg and I move it out towards the right, that's internal rotation. And I can do it full, 60 degrees, something crazy. But I ask you to do it, and you can only show me 20. Do you lack flexibility? Because the joint goes all the way. So I'm not going to stretch you. I'm not going to ask you to do tissue mobility. I'm going to find a way to make your body stable in that position so that you own those degrees. And so the other parts of our body don't have to get into the mix and start slowing movement down or involving other parts of your body that are not necessary for that. That is a very big light bulb moment for a lot of people. And it, it's one of those the main ways we mitigate pain in sports and in competition. So would you say that uh, hip mobility is a determining factor for, for success in jujitsu? I would say that there are norms of range that are required to be a competitive jujitsu player. And those norms of range are, are known and documented. Um, but yes, if now you don't have to have it all, but you better be pretty special in something else. So let's yeah. say, <laughs> let's say your hip doesn't go that way. All right. So that means certain guards aren't available to you. Okay. That's fine. I mean, I'm one of those guys, like I don't have a ton of hip flexion. I got hip labrum tears from playing baseball. And so I know I can't sit up and play guard like, um, all these footlocker guys, like with their head all ahead of their hips. I just can't do it. It hurts. So I sit on a side. Oh, now I better be really, really good at shooting single leg X. Cause that's what I got from that spot. But I, I'm going to have a hard time pulling somebody up over my head um, with my knees in my chest or getting inverted. Okay, that's fine. That's just not part of my game. And so people start to recognize that. Like, well, I had an injury, and so I can only move this way. All right, great. Well, we're going to make the rest of it so good, and you're just going to do your best not to get stuck in that guard or uh, in that striking scenario where you can't defend yourself. Um, So there is some of that difference. And – it might take some tools away, but it also might make you better in other places that others just don't have because they don't have the practice there and they're trying to, you know, they're manipulating more space. One of our coaches, Johnny Durrett out in, he's in Connecticut. Okay. Uh, but he owns an MMA facility that he also, it's half barbell weight room and, and big time. So he's got a good thing going on. And he had a question for you specifically for hip strength. And you've spoken here today on hip strength and the value of it, just a note, but he wanted to know some specific exercises that he could apply to his athletes that are hitting the barbell heavy and then hitting the mat. So So, that have, that have generalizability to the mat. Yes. Oh yes. Yes. Of course. So, um, for us, uh, we talk a lot about plane, right? So someone can show me how, how they hurt. And I go, okay, well, yes, this muscle is working or you have injured this ligament or this part of your hip is a little wonky. But what are we looking at? Are we looking at external rotation with your hip inflection? Okay, well, then there's like five movements that come to mind. You can think hip airplanes, standing clams, steamboats, and a bunch of other, whatever. It doesn't really matter. But once you, once you understand what plane you're limited in, that's going to dictate what motion. So I could show you a list of 50 exercises that we give, but they wouldn't be generalizable to every single person. It would be like, mm-hmm. well, what's missing? Um, on the whole, stuff that we do with a lot of people because it does have generalizability for most, um, a lot of hip abduction with uh, resisted 
external rotation is a big one. So a lot of training, as it's typically done, is very north and south oriented. You're pulling a bar off the ground, you're going into extension. You got sagittal plane power, right? When you're doing a lunge, you have some anti-rotation and some anti-sidebending going on, but you're still really north and south. You're pushing, you're pulling, same thing. So when people come in, it's not uncommon that we find the issues in the rotational and side-bending physics moments. So that's where we load them. Um, and what you'll find is a lot of single leg activity happens as a result of that in this person's programming and balance and power, uh, rotary control. Um, punching and kicking are very much ground reaction force mo movements, similar to swinging a baseball bat or similar to kicking a soccer ball. I mean, it's all about storing energy, getting it to the ground, and then getting it back up into your hands or whatever you're trying to throw. So if it's a hand, then it's a punch. Um, but you're, if you're missing control over your left side hip external rotation, then you're going to leak energy out that way. And as that power gets to your hand, you will need to input more power in order to deliver the strike. And that's when oh, my elbow is bothering me or my shoulder is bothering me. It's because your elbow and your shoulder are doing much, much more than they need to because you're spilling power everywhere. And so, um, like I said, with hip power, we spend a ton of time pushing external rotation, pushing abduction, strength, and activity tolerance, um, and just loading that very heavily. So, you know, it could be like a Bulgarian split squats with plyometrics or with different kind of jumping techniques. But again, it's, it's how do we make this a balanced challenge and make it generalizable to punch someone in the face. So is it something, um, and I always, I always wonder, especially with fighters, because uh, I would say fighters are probably as big a rockheads as football players. But <laughs> like, uh, like when somebody comes in and you show them that they're limited, like, hey, we're going to do this and you're limited here, does it help to actually put them into practical application and be like, okay, this is where this is becoming an issue? And like, you know, as they all of a sudden, hey, like you can't pass guard here. So you mm -hmm. put them in that position. You're like, this is exactly where you're limited. If you were able to do this, this is what could happen. And I yeah. think that's what's like an interesting piece with actually you doing it. Whereas a lot of times, uh, you know, in football with you know the ATCs and whatever, um, they would say, hey, you know, here's this injury. But they never went to the point of like, OK, hey, you're missing a little bit of overhead shoulder rotation. Mm -hmm. This is where it might potentially hurt you because they didn't really train or lift weights and they sure as hell didn't play football. So sure. it was like, um, I have a, I have a weird deal where, uh, the popliteus muscle in the back of my right knee is kind of calcified nice. and just, uh, okay. yeah, I mean, just loading <laughs> and inflammation and it's yeah. basically laid down some, some bone spurs mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. uh, are acting like a doorstop and, okay. uh, I can squat to parallel and I can do everything. It's just going past parallel fucking hurts. And it, sure. and it gets lit up, and especially with, um, you know, the popliteus prevents uh, or does uh, unlocking and uh, locking and unlocking of the knee. So mm -hmm. it, I lose extension when it gets lit up. So this is something I've dealt with for a long time. And when I would go in and tell them, they would look and they just kind of shrug their shoulders where well, you can still do your job. And I'm like, yeah, but I can't get my calf to fire if I can't straighten my knee. Sure. And like I would kind of go through this stuff and it was like, well, you can still do your job. And I'm like, well, yeah, because I'm a fucking master recruiter. I figure out how to do shit when things yeah. are broken. Yeah. So I wonder if there's like uh, that piece of being actually a practitioner and user and, and being able to speak that language for guys that might not be as sophisticated. Yeah, absolutely. I think anyone, if you want to see football players, you, you better get a sense of all that motion and be able it, – it's real powerful to show someone test, test retest results. So in the case of a jiu-jitsu player who says to me, okay, I have an issue getting into this guard or transitioning from this place to this place, show me. Show me that right now. 
and then we will treat something, whatever I believe to be the issue, and then we're going to put you right back there again. So that's something that just having the knowledge of what position, what these positions even are, what the loads are, and what a non-compliant opponent would be doing to you when you're trying these kinds of things, um, we know the kind of input. And it's very powerful when it's like, all right, all we, all we did was one joint manipulation, right? you know, one closed chain technique, and all of a sudden, you, you got into that position and didn't say this hurts. That is very, very common. Uh, when it comes to the kinds of things that we do. And, and I'm not the only one that does this, I promise. Um, but but those, are there a lot of guys that don't actually do this that are working with MMA guys? Yeah. yeah. Yes. So, so they're yes. like, uh... Yeah, you're totally on it. Um, it's sort of shameful that an NFL training room doesn't have guys in it or gals that, that uh, really can put the function you know, of just parts of our body into the context that we're trying to do. Because um, football's so popular. I mean, it's almost like what are you in a fucking cave? Like football is the best. So, so you should know some of the movements you're trying to get back to being able to do. Jiu-jitsu is much more obscure. Um, but there are people because physical therapy is popular. I mean, people get hurt all the time. Just shooting in the dark. Well, you have your knee flexion. I tested it. Your knee is strong. I mean, you should be good. And that message of, well, but I still can't do X, Y, or Z. Doesn't, it doesn't sink in. And so you you get left with like, I don't know. And it's unfortunate. Um, it's sort of become my new mission to find all of the jujitsu physios, chiros, trainers, like in the world that I can say, okay, look, if you're in Lincoln, Nebraska, I got a guy for you. Uh, we're developing a website right now. It's partly going to have that functionality. You go in and you sort of tell it what's going on. And then it spits out for you uh, a, a do-it-yourself treatment program to involve mobility, uh, drilling, neuromuscular education to back to the mat. But part of it is I know I can't treat everyone. And so if you're in Lincoln, Nebraska, and you hit this thing with a question and it's not getting you, well, I want somebody to be able to send you to, but I have to know they know jujitsu. They have to be a BJJ physio. Um, so that's something in the works right now. I'm very excited about it because I think it will help a lot of people who are constantly searching for like, it hurts when I do this. And my doctor said, just stop. <laughs> what do I do? Because stop is not the answer. Especially if it's like, again, the soul-filling thing. Um, you want to be able to go and do that without a problem. And even if you did, did get hurt, tell me what I can change for a short time so this can heal, but I can continue to train. Um, yeah, you're see, we're seeing it uh, more and more that people are getting the sense that this is not just get up and, getting up and out of a chair or walking up and down the stairs. It's a different kind of knowledge base to treat these kinds of people. In, in line with your mission, you expressed before we started the show that you're doing some teaching at yeah. my alma mater, Marymount University. The, the, the Marymount University. Uh, uh -huh. you the know what's Harvard hilarious? of the East Coast. What, what makes me laugh is uh, I always thought, and to this day, when somebody says Marymount, I grew up in Southern California, there's a junior college. Uh, oh, no, that's no. Uh, in Palos Verdes. It's called Marymount that like where all the fuck up kids I went to school with <laughs> they went to Marymount and uh, it was like this kind of like very expensive uh, junior college that you just paid some exorbitant fee and if you paid the fee your kid got in. So every time you say it I kind of <laughs> chuckle a little bit well, and I'm like they're probably related. Well university price tag on the end of my <laughs> education division three university so that says something versus the colleges we played in lacrosse uh, sure. but Part of your mission in line with the, the, the mixed martial arts community, there's also with the, the DPT community. Sure, So sure. express some of the 
one, the mission, and two, what are you specifically teaching at Marymount to their future DPTs to help empower the future of your profession? Yeah, sure. So the the overarching issue right now, and this is shared by physical therapists across the world, um, DPT education, um, while we push the idea that physical therapists are these movement experts, I would I would say that we are arthrokinematics experts. It's a large word. It just means what ha- okay, you look it up text. <laughs> it, I'm, I'm just me- it, it just means what happens between the surfaces in our joints that allow for osteokinematic movement, as in a knee bending is osteokinematic. It's two bones moving past one another in some way. Arthrokinematics are what happens inside the joint that makes that go. And so we get lots of education on how to improve arthrokinematics, and we get lots of education on how to move soft tissue around, and, and then up to a certain point, some therex. But like I said earlier, the issue we're having with these populations of more motivated, competitive folks is bending their knee to 120 degrees, which is typically all you need, which is not true really, but um, isn't their concern. Concern is kicking a football, kicking a person in the face, uh, <laughs> not being heel hooked. Like those are their concerns. And so those ranges of motion and the, the hardening that needs to go along with that person's plan of care is not anywhere close to physical therapy education. Um, there's just a lot to study. And so you miss that. You don't really get that when you either go to a clinic like ours or seek someone out who has some niche kind of uh, population that they're seeing where they can talk about these kinds of extra things. My goal is to get into physical therapy programs. And so there are several programs in the area we have done this with and a couple um, that we will continue to expand this offering to where we go in, teach the basics of normative movement, teach the basics of loading someone with a barbell, a kettlebell. But really, when you're watching someone move around, what are you looking for? Mm-hmm. And what clues does that give you as to why they would have an issue in X activity? Um, we, we talk a lot about ground reaction force in that setting because I would say that the vast majority of people do things like play softball, golf, tennis. But really, punching and kicking are not terribly far off from the ground reaction force necessary to do that well. So if someone says, oh, I want to train boxers, okay, cool. We could still use a lot of this. You still got to know, do they possess the ability to rotate their trunk over their hips? Do they possess the ability in their knee to rotate that amount? What do you mean knee? Your knee has to rotate an amount. It's any one of us can do it. But if you don't have it, it's going to limit your ability to throw a punch because you're going to leak energy out of that knee. Um, so how you select the loading protocol and what you're looking for is the biggest gap I think that's missing there. And uh, Marymount, along with other schools, have taken us up on um, just having us in. It's usually a couple couple days or a week uh, inside of an exercise physiology sort of curriculum. And we do a lot of moving around. It feels more like a workshop. I'm sweating when I'm doing the thing that it does a lecture. Um, but that's how I want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I want people to feel what it's like to load somebody because this shit's heavy. <laughs> Kettlebells are not light. Moving that stuff around space is difficult. Uh, the the specifics on how to deadlift, the specifics on how to hip hinge and, and how much rotation is necessary for these certain populations. That's very specific stuff. And um, uh, you got to just at least introduce it as a concept. And they get thinking about it and they, they typically will ask us questions after those things are over. And then when they come in and see it in action, it, it clicks. Um, but yeah, I, my hope is that more programs in the country do that and we can really make more what I call next gen PTs, more actual movement experts, not just people who are only worried about joint mechanics on the smallest scale. 
yeah, I hope the, the movement that you apply exposes them. And similar that we do in our strength and conditioning education is introduce, we simply call them warm-ups, some actions on the floor that yep. expose weaknesses within coaches. Mm-hmm. And then the big thing from my experience with coaches, if they have a limitation themselves, more often than not, it's leaked into their program for their athletes. Sure. So if they don't sure. know they have this limitation, odds are their athletes have this. Well, I think a lot of times coaches come in with almost like, hey, like here's a preset idea of what I want to do. And then they put people in instead of looking at the individual and being like, where are the lug nuts loose? Like what can this person can and can't do? And then finding a way for them to execute like the best version of themselves. I mean, sure. we run into people all the time that are, you know, if you're missing hip extension and, and it's pretty interesting because we'll see it just start with like a bar, basic barbell back squat. <laughs> and if you see somebody in that bilateral movement and then you start switching them up into unilateral movements and all of a sudden they have way more range of motion in a unilateral mm-hmm. movement than they do in that. So then like the conventional thinking is, well, I have to stretch them. And it's like, why, you <laughs> let them, why don't you get them proficient and strong in the ranges of motion that they're able to get and then Love transition it. back. And I think, uh, uh, everybody gets so stuck in this like idea of, um, and you know, and when you start thinking about performance and I think the one thing that's fucked performance the most is kind of bodybuilding. And I, 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 I always think if you want to learn how to make bigger, stronger athletes, you got to know something about bodybuilding, but you can't necessarily look at power lifters and bodybuilders and try to extrapolate their training out for performance for athletes. And we used to see that all the time with, uh, you know, in football, well, this guy's a power lifter and I'm like, Okay, so he's really good at moving a bar from point A to point B for one rep. What's he going to teach me? And those guys have no rotation. There's no rotation in their sport, and everything's bilateral, and I'm always on one foot. And so these were the questions that I had. And then all of a sudden they're like, well, you seem like an asshole. I'm like, ah, wait, because I'm fucking asking questions? Because all this guy can do is bilateral hip hinge? Yeah. Come on. Like, let's let's not be crazy people here. Yeah, no, that's terrific. Um, the ability to push a bar off of your chest is useful in football to the extent that the resistance is directly in front of you. Yeah. And if you really want to get stupid about generalizability, when you're on your back. Well, frankly, if you're on your back and a football player, the battle's already been lost. Like, we're, we're, not, we're not working on the same things. And so you're dead on that we have to figure out, um, again, I've said this like 10 times. What are we trying to be going to be able to do again? What are we going back to? And then where are we deficient? So actually, Texas is a terrific one. You can use your dynamic warm-up. You can use your priming, uh, your priming movements to sort of uncover a lot of these things. And so everyone who comes in here, whether they're being evaluated for neck pain or shoulder pain, like we put them through our movement assessment, but then also a number of what we call north, south, east, west, and then rotational um, uh, primers. And we go, okay, well, I don't know what's going on, but today you're having a hard time rotating left. Okay, we got to spend a little more time on this before we get to the rest. That's no big deal. And then the idea that putting people in certain boxes, while it does help organize things, um, everyone, I think, needs to get that education so they can begin advocating for like, well, I, I know that my hip, aside from the hips and these other guys in this group, needs a little more care. All right, so I'm going to take it upon myself to either seek that care or do that on my own. Um, but that comes from empowering people and saying, mm-hmm. well, look, we know you need this much. And we know today you have this much minus X. So just do more of X plus this or help, let me help you a little bit extra with that motion and it should translate to the ability to you know, exhibit power in whatever plane you want. That's beautiful. I love the the practitioner that also is a teacher, a coach that is also a teacher, because you are empowering. You are giving, hey, this is what this means. And, and when you feel this, 
on game day. So they go away from you and they're, they're feeling good. You did your job, but then they start to feel, oh, I remember this. Car- yes. Carlos told me this. So I, I love to, to have people having that same experience where they are coaches slash teachers, not just grouping it all into one bucket. Do you have an issue with, um, like, I, I sometimes wonder with, uh, like, MMA coaches, like, let's say you have a coach and he has a, a team of individuals. Is it something to, like, where the individual reaches out or does the coach reach out to you and be like, hey, so-and-so is having issues. He can't do this or he's in a lot of pain or he's not able to train. So then they either send them to you or you bring them in or, you know, and then, you're, then you start doing your detective work to try to figure out where they're deficient. Yeah, um, fortunately, considering the amount of time we've been treating grapplers, MMA guys, Muay Thai professionals, that kind of thing, um, we have a very close-knit relationship with a lot of the coaches uh, in this area. And for the most part, they may have been a patient at some time. You know, that's not uncommon. Um, I mean, I can name five or six coaches right now who are very, very high-level um, uh, martial artists and combat athletes, and they'll have their little clutch of athletes they're preparing for fights and they will be able to pick out based on what I have gone through or my team has gone through with them. Like, Hey, they're not moving in the way that we know is sort of necessary. And so they become kind of a new call it BJJ physio on site. And they go, all right, well, I've shown them the thing that you told me helps with my back in that place. And it's not working. Okay. Well, maybe they're just got a little different issue going on. And then that coach will call and send that person in here. Um, but that's so good. Um, because it's so encouraging that we're creating these people with this eye Mm -hmm. that is not just how hard are you hitting it? It's like, are you moving purely? Is there efficiency here? And if there isn't, they know that there are people, even if it's not me, um, that they can seek. Uh, and again, that's one of the things I'm trying to do is find that Rolodex, get everyone on the page, um, who can help these kinds of athletes so that we can expand our ability to help everybody stay on the map or just stay competitive. I love it. That's I, great. I would love to spend some time now in weight cutting and weight class oh, uh-huh. with respect to, to football where we're big in gain generally, generally. <laughs> and then in mixed martial arts, it's almost cutting down. Sure. So if there's a differentiation between these two, is it the same mindset and approach from your experience? How do we handle cutting? How do we handle gaining for the professional athlete? Yeah. Uh, Weight cutting is a very cool topic. There actually is quite a bit of literature, but um, that you could take like right to the training room and make work. But again, the problems, I I don't care. There are many. The solutions are what I'm concerned about. And what the big thing is, um, is the amount of time that separates weigh-in from competition actually is one of the larger concerns with the amount people can cut. So if you say, all right, I'm going to give you, you're going to weigh in on Monday and you're going to fight on Saturday. Mm. Well, the amount of the ability, that, 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 not, that doesn't happen. Well, let's yeah, just no, say hypothetically, <laughs> right. That would be a great deal. Uh, well, how much weight can I put back on between Monday and Saturday? It's a lot. Hundred pounds. You could re- you could rehydrate. You could eat. You could do all the things. So, therefore, how much can I drop off between I don't know whatever date and that Monday to be ready for competition? And so what we have found is the longer the amount of time between weigh-in and competition, the higher percentage of total body mass people typically cut. Uh, MMA is one of the uh, the highest uh, in in um, the average uh, in the latest study. It had like a hundred people in it. It was pretty good, uh, ranging from competitive like professional to amateur athletes. Um, they were seeing cuts between nine and eleven percent total body mass. 
But in promotions or in sports where the weigh-in and the competition is closer together, the percent of body mass cut is far, far lower. And so is the incidence of injury. Not only injury, though, it's almost predictive of win-loss performance. Hmm. It's, it's actually ridiculous. Like, so the question is, are you at a greater risk for getting hurt if you cut more weight? It's like, shit, you're at a greater risk for losing. Like the literature says it again and again. Um, not to mention the kinds of things that it does to your ability to take a punch. So you have concentration issues. You have actual fragility issues when you cut too much weight. And then your literal risk for losing is greater. So where should we be? Should guys just be walking around closer to their fight weight? Should people consider, let me not drop from one from 190 to 145? I mean, yeah, one could do that. Um, but the, the deleterious effects of that are proven. We have the data on this now. Um, where you go to a jiu-jitsu tournament that I would go to, the weight is an hour before you fight. <laughs> like, you're not putting more weight on. And so the utility of cutting 20 pounds is ridiculous. There's none. You're only yeah. going to be tired and mad and perform poorly and not have good concentration. And so that may be one of the things that people can uh, consider in changing a rule to improve the issue we're having with people either just having poor performance or actually getting really badly injured is by taking that time and shrinking it down a little bit because it's just physically not possible to put that mask back on fast enough. So it's, it's, it's a possible solution based on literature. Yeah, no, um, uh, you know, in powerlifting, um, I can think of Brandon Lilly's story when he fell with like 880 on his back. He Ugh. had cut a ton of weight and he, he stood up with the weight and couldn't feel his legs. Ugh. And like couldn't sense when they were unlocking and ended up falling. It was a pretty interesting story. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I sometimes think, um, you know, and when you've seen these really, really dramatic weight cuts, the guys usually don't have a good outcome. I also wonder how many weight cuts an individual has in them, kind of like we were talking about hits oh, to the head. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that's another issue. And I know that from some of the MMA guys we've worked with. Mm -hmm. uh, there's only so many dramatic weight cuts. Like you can yeah. cut like, you know, three to four percent. And if it's, you know, five to seven pounds, you can, you know, not eat one day and get in the sauna and kind of do the traditional. But when guys start cut, cutting 20, 30, 40 pounds, sure. like there's, you know, there was, um, uh, it was, uh, so, when we were in, uh, we're based in Austin, Texas. When we were in Costa Mesa, we were next door to the Ruka factory. And so they had uh, uh, their whole fight thing for Ruka set up. And a bunch of their fighters used to come over. Uh, Vitor Belfort used to come over and we would do uh, and lift weights with us. And um, it was pretty interesting when talking about those guys in the weight cuts. Their comment was like, you only get so many. Like you only have so many of those in, in you. And for some guys, it could be two. Some guys could do five. But it's pretty interesting. And then once guys start depending upon that, then that becomes a real issue. Yeah, I would agree. Um, we're seeing that the evidence uh, points to um, MMA as sort of a um, uh, usual suspect for issues with cutting too much weight. But wrestlers are very much studied in the frequency of cutting weight because of the number of times over the course of a wrestling career that goes up and down. And so that has... Uh, some very interesting endocrinological and end, hormone problems. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. get issues with hormone regulation when you do that um, in a similar manner as how many shots can you take to the head? You know, and unfortunately, we don't know this coming out of the box. We don't know, okay, you have this many weight cuts in you or you have this many uh, big shots to the head or you have this many pitches in your body. You just, you just prepare as much as you can thicken up that movement account as good as you can and then you hope for the best um so yeah weight cutting is an interesting one so if you want to research 
the issues with the number of times people do it. You're going to see wrestlers in there a lot. Or if you're going to see problems with the actual uh, problems in a single performance, you're going to see a lot of MMA issues compared uh, mm-hmm. MMA fighters compared to wrestlers compared to Muay Thai compared to other folks. I remember Louis Simmons uh, talking about um, you know we were talking about performance enhancing when I, I was out at Westside a bunch of years ago. And uh, I remember we went to dinner and he was talking about um, it's not the drugs that kill people because if it did, the powerlifters wouldn't die at the rate that bodybuilders do. Mm. And I was like, well, it's an interesting one because you always hear about these bodybuilders fucking keeling over and dying. And he's like, the powerlifters take more drugs. The problem is they don't do the weight cuts and they don't do like, you know, the dropping of the body fat and the the crazy dieting and and like all of that to get into shape. He's like, it's actually the getting in shape part that puts them at the most dangerous place. And um, I was like, fuck, man. Interesting that's a, observation. Well, man. I mean, because, they, you know, whenever these guys die, they always talk about, oh, you know, it had to be the steroids. And they go through this whole thing. And these guys eh. keel over in their 20s. And it's mm-hmm. like, ah, that's not the case. It's probably the fact that there's these extreme weight fluctuations yeah. where, you know, this guy's all of a sudden, you know, 275 pounds. And next thing you know, he's fucking cut into like fucking 190. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, and then putting the weight back on and those fluctuations tend to, like you said, uh, endocrinology, endocrinology, just go to hormones, yeah, just hormones. <laughs> it's, uh, you got yeah. it. <laughs> endocrinology, but I can't, is it endocrinological, endocrinological, oh, there yeah, it is. That sounds right. Yeah, there you go. That was Ooh. it. That was Dude, tough. You, you get two big words. <laughs> yeah. But that's, I mean, so it, I, like in the sport of MMA and uh, like what you're seeing is like the, like what becomes like the. The biggest red flag. I mean, like if a guy does a ton of weight cuts, are you seeing more injuries? Is it uh, volume within the fight camps? Is it training? Is it lack of preparation? Or is it just maybe some guys aren't strong because they do a bunch of high motor, high, uh, you know, high heart rate, high glycolytic CrossFit type stuff? Um, you know, it's a, unfortunately, it always depends, right? There's no one answer to that. Uh, many times the people we're seeing with weight cut issues are the ones who are not spending um, time around or close enough to their actual fight weight like they get out of shape and that doesn't happen to a lot of pros and unfortunately we are seeing issues if you keep track with like the last dozen or so promotions um people are just missing weight and i think that the penalty is not stiff enough i mean i don't know if this is a political thing right but to miss weight by a pound or two and give you that advantage over the course of over an, an athlete and only take you know some amount of a purse well hell if i win then I get the big purse. So I'll come in over, but the other guy didn't. And you don't know if it's because that guy was out of shape. You don't know if that guy or that gal was gaming this system. Um, but in the most part, when people in our side of it, when people struggle with weight, it's because they underestimated the difficulty of cutting and sort of didn't take care of themselves between fight camps. Um, so that's my, our, our most recent experience with this. Um, with cutting and, and kind of the difficulties people were having with that. Is it just being, I mean, is it you're that they're lazy? It. Yeah. I knew you were going to say I, it. I, well, like I lazy, <laughs> it's, like here's the deal. Like I, if you know what the weight you need to be on the given day and you can't mm-hmm. fucking hit it, you're either stupid, got bad coaching or you're just fucking lazy. And you know what? Like, um, I, you know, to, uh, to build off that lazy, I listened to interview with Charles Barkley. And he talked about, so he was drafted to the Philadelphia 76ers at the tail end of Dr. J's career. Did I tell you I used to hang with Charles Barkley? No, but hold that thought because he, he gave credit to Dr. J for, for his success of his career because the old vet called him out and said, being lazy. 
because he was SEC player of the year, drafted in the tops, and was good. But then all of a sudden, at the NBA, he faced stiffer competition, and finally the old vet just called him out, and he listened. He gave himself credit for listening, but then they, they would do extra. I'm so smart because I listened. And give it to Barkley. Uh, yeah, first yeah. of all, Barkley, uh, Barkley should have played football because he was about 300 pounds. Oh, yeah. Well, he's 6'6", six, yeah. six, about 275. He's, he's but, not 6'6". Six, six. Uh, well, according I'm, I'm just telling you because I'm 6'6", six, six, and I was legitimately two inches John, taller than you him. you know Power Athlete goes by programs <laughs> yeah, just yeah. like I'm 5'10". But uh, in dude, high school. We used to run in. He, he still had a house <laughs> up on the main line. We used to run into him all the time in Philly. And surprisingly, in Vegas, not surprising. Not surprising. Big surprise. <laughs> but uh, it was um, I, like I just in and uh, you know like just like uh, you know people watch Hard Knocks and think they know football. You know, like uh, you know you're watching The Ultimate Fighter, which I always enjoyed those shows. Um, and you'll see guys going into the weight cuts, and some guys like, hey, you got to stay in here. We got to cut the weight, and other guys like I can acting all dramatic. Yeah. And I just figured some people have the you know the the fortitude and kind of that like moxie, that grit within them just to be like, Hey, I'm going to fucking suffer more than other people. Yeah. And yeah. other people don't have the ability to suffer. And I wonder if that's indicative for, it feels like that's indicative of success in your sport. If you can fucking suffer, like, yeah. uh, you know, we work a lot with uh, Naval special warfare and Navy seals. And, uh, they always ask me like, Oh, what, what does it take to be? And I'm like, I think you just got to be able to suffer more than the next guy. If yeah. you're good at suffering, you'll be successful. Yeah, there is a part of people's brains, especially the ones whose jersey you buy, whose name you know, that can handle that a little better. And again, it's one of those things you don't know until you're kind of in it. Um, anyone who's coached anyone has, has those people who have been relying on just ability, like just something, a gift that they have. And, and I, can, I can rattle off people who, man, I just wish they would have put the effort in and maybe – been stamped down a little bit earlier in their career like if you're that much better at tennis than somebody well how much work do you really need to put in i'm destroying people it's like a great but the next level you don't understand what's coming those guys are waiting for you and when you get there they're going to show you that that extra something that will to suffer that enjoying that embracing the suck um is a intangible trait that if you could bottle up you can create a lot more cool athletes, but not everyone's got it. And uh, hell, I mean, I could probably stick myself there. There's an amount of suffering I want to go through, and the rest I'll pass. Um, but that's okay. I fix people for a living now. <laughs> no, I mean, we, but yeah, we, lazy we, is, might be the word. We saw it in football. I mean, there were guys that were lazy that didn't come in in shape, that didn't show yep. up. You know, like you knew what the data conditioning test, you knew what the times were, you, you oh, knew yeah. what they were going to ask, you knew it was going to be hot, and guys would come up and prepared or. Um, you know, like the, uh, you know, the ability to play with pain, which was another huge one where, you know, you fucking dislocated finger during a game or in the middle of a play, you stand up and you basically pop, you it, know, back. Yeah, pop it back, put it in, you know, shake <laughs> your hand go. like this and be like, Ooh. And then when you yeah. get out to the next play or, uh, you know, after, you know, when you hit the sideline, you basically tape it up and you just keep rolling and then you sure. come in the next day. And I, it was funny playing with guys who would have these like injuries and would act all dramatic and be like, dislocated his finger, huh? He just didn't put it back in. He went yeah, to the exactly. hospital? Holy shit, I didn't even know that was yeah. a fucking option. <laughs> so it's, it's, yeah. it's probably, uh, you know, it's good for that. But then also for those guys, their injuries tend to be more dramatic because they didn't have the signaling before. So I wonder how yeah. that also works where you're balancing like, hey, this is a tough motherfucker. For him to say something's wrong, something's really got to be wrong. So how do we yeah. help him before? And I think that's what's most fascinating about 
um, you know, the coach watching and you doing and being a practitioner, mm-hmm. Hey, mm-hmm. like this guy's not going to say anything, but he can't do this the way he used to. Sure. Fix him. sure. I think you bring up an interesting thing about, um, you, one might be able to make this real technical. I would say that descending inhibition is another trait that you're born with. Your brain's ability to feel something not nice and go, ah, I don't have time for that right now. Like a dislocated finger, like a grade one shoulder separation. You can play with that depending upon what you're doing. But there are some folks who just don't have that. Their brain gets that signal and they go, shit. Something's wrong. I can't move my arm now. And those are the ones who, if they get to the highest level of whatever, maybe it was via luck. They just didn't have that until then. Or they're really special at something else. But for the most part, the ones you know, the people you look up to have that thing. And that thing might be more technically called a better ability for descending inhibition in the central nervous system. I would call it tough motherfucker. Like he's, he wears it and it goes forward. That's a different skill. I don't know if you can teach it. Um, it's one of the reasons, though, I encourage a lot of youth athletes to take up some form of combat art. Um, not because I think, you know, jujitsu is great, boxing is great, MMA is great. But the, the chess match that happens when you're doing that kind of thing and the incidental contact you're constantly wearing when you're playing jujitsu, um, you shrug it off more and more and more. I mean, so if I'm passing someone and I, somebody elbows me in the face, if I stop for a moment, I've lost the edge that I got. I was turning a corner. I was pinning a hip, whatever it was. And then I get hit and I go, oh, no. Well, now they're going to regain guard. And I, all that work I did was for nothing. So at a point you go, I don't care about that. You go forward. And it might be a real injury where it's like, I don't fucking care. I'm going to pass you or I'm going to finish this choke or I'm going to finish whatever. And so if we can – hell, if we could flip a switch and turn more youth athletes into people who don't get sidetracked by those glancing blows, those minor insults, it might turn them into somebody with a little better descending inhibition, with a little better ability to go, this is the focus. My goal is this. I don't care about that. I don't care about this. Go forward. I dislocated a finger. Fuck it. I still got to finish this block. This guy is you know, whatever, trying to kill my quarterback. I can't think about that minor insult move forward and that toughness and grit might be able to be trained better i just don't know if everyone's born with that yeah no that's uh yeah i mean uh like yeah i mean it, you see it in football players i wonder in fighters i mean have you ever seen guys um because football is one of those sports that just weeds fucking people out because there's so many opportunities to do it like you have to get through training camp you're going to go through this i mean if guys aren't you know like it's real hard for dudes to kind of fucking just sneak in that, that don't sure. have that. And if they do, it's like they're usually not playing the sport or the position I played offensive line or, you know, they're, they're not playing close to the ball. Um, I sometimes wonder in the MMA stuff, if somebody's so gifted and such an incredible athlete, and I think we saw this early on, they could just go out and fucking dominate people just on pure athleticism. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you see them and they take a big shot and you realize like, holy shit, dude, that guy can't take a fucking punch. Right. You know, like, um, I mean, as you know, I mean, that's like the biggest determining factor. Can you take a punch? And there's other dudes that get hit with monster shots to the face and you like see that perfect jaw shot and the dude shakes it off and you're like, holy shit, dude, that's crazy. Yeah. There's something real cool about that as a weapon. I mean, I've not personally experienced that, but I've seen fighters experience that where that guy took my best shot and shit, he is still coming. <laughs> that is a weapon. You can weaponize that. And I've seen guys who it's like, you see him wilt, and you're just like, what the hell happened here? Yeah. Like, this guy looked bad as hell. 
And that might be that kind of scenario where they just hadn't felt that before. And um, that toughness may be something we can coach. But uh, again, I don't know if it's everyone's got it. It's interesting to watch. Do you think that uh, that happens with um, like with injury? Because um, one of the guys I always used to really enjoy was uh, Old Lasky. Um, remember that dude where that wore the the Fang mouthpiece, Adrian Olaski. Andre, uh, yeah. he just fought. Andre Olaski, yeah. Yeah, he he was a guy early on. Remember, he was so gifted and was just tearing people up. Yes. And then there was a weird thing where all of a sudden he started taking some big shots and he yep. couldn't he couldn't keep his feet. Yeah, and, uh, I don't know if you saw the last fight. It was a very cool um, demonstration of that. Uh, he's one of the guys, that, I mean, everyone who's watched MMA has watched him for a long time. He's 42 yeah. right now. He, I'm was, like, he was one of my favorite fighters. Amazing. Like, motor, one of the first guys, I think, that really, really mixed um, the jiu-jitsu, the sambo, the striking all together. Just amazing. And the aggressiveness was something that we hadn't seen at that point. Um, but he just fought a week or so ago and it was watching, it was just like watching that. I don't know if it was this guy's running out of shots to take before the lights go out or something occurred where his nose does not look like a nose anymore. I mean, something occurred where shots seem to hit him differently nowadays. Uh, and so that could be an evolution of of some guys. Um, and I feel bad because he's such a great fighter, and I think his legacy, um, you know, he'll be a Hall of Famer, absolutely. Um, but he's going out in the way I don't think he wants to go out. Um, but I still look up to him. He's an amazing, amazing fighter. It's happening, though. How, how does that happen? I, uh, like in football, that, that would, well, what they do is they just cut you and they get rid of you when you can't play Exactly. Anymore, <laughs> which is, is kind of funny because um, it, it's kind of an interesting deal where, like, you can play, and then all of a sudden one day you can't play. And it's, it, it happens as quick as like this. And it was something that I, I saw happen to guys where I was like, man, that guy was a fucking beast and that guy can't play dead now. And yeah. uh, it wasn't until I met, um, I don't know if you ever met a guy named or heard of a guy named Craig Bueller. We've had him on our podcast before. He has a, a practice. He's a, a Cairo PT that does something called AMIT, Activated Muscle Integration Technique. And okay. he works with a bunch of Olympic athletes. And he was able to figure out that, like, through injury, muscles stop firing. And then, you know, really good athletes start recruiting around. And then they get to the point where, like, this is the straw that broke the camel's back. Sure, and sure. that's what kind of happened with me with my knee, where all of a sudden I could play. And then I had an injury. And all of a sudden I couldn't push off anymore. Yeah. And it was, you know, going and working with him was kind of eye-opening. Um, I sometimes wonder in the fight game if they're willing to bring people in because they still have a big name and they know it's a big ticket, people are going to go pay-per-view and then they bring people in and there's nothing like watching, like seeing that aging hero come in and just fucking look bad. And you're like, God damn it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there's a bit of that. Um, I don't want to call it politics, but there's something about the bureaucracy of keeping guys around like an Andre Orlovsky, like a Robbie Lawler, uh, one day it'll be Kamar Usman, who is the gatekeeper of his weight class. Like, man, that guy was the fucking bomb. Like, he, he was killing everybody. Now it's like the guy you got to beat to be called legit. Yeah. And so there is that that plays a role. And I, again, that is not my business, but um, you see some of it. Guys stay around because they have that name. I mean, Andre Arlovsky's name is well known by anybody who's watched this stuff. Sure. But uh, it is a typical thing where we see that straw the broke the camel's back scenario where – you, you sort of had an injury, and by mistake or, by, or on purpose, you never got it fully treated. You weren't actually all the way well again, so you kept on. And then, all right, well, my knee doesn't do that thing. Well, my hip can help it a little bit. Okay, now my hip is out of juice. I can't help anymore. Well, my 
foot can control the position of my knee. All right, cool. So now your foot's helping and your hip is out of gas and your knee is now just wearing load. All right, well, now my foot's sort of out of room. Let's see if my lumbar spine can help with rotation or power or whatever it is. And this sort of spread occurs. And for somebody like me who I'm like, well, where's the thick layer of the cake here? It's like everywhere. I got to go, when did this begin? <laughs> and so you can sort of unpack that. Um, but it becomes more difficult the longer that goes on. And so we do see it commonly where it's like, I think this began from somewhere way in the back. And But at least you can treat from that place. If you can get to the bottom of it, you can treat from that place. And you see a lot of times this trickle down to the places that were compensating for that issue um, sort of disappear. Um, so it's not if, always. That's a success. That's a success stories like that. Well, if, if, if guys kind of age, and I was thinking of Randy Couture in this way, where like yep. all of a sudden as he aged, he, he got into like, uh, you know, his whole dirty boxing thing where he's just pinning <laughs> guys up and fucking beating them up. And it was like, yep. hey, I can't move like I used to. So now I'm going to put these guys into a situation where now I can be successful. And that evolution of fighting allowed him to continue. And that dude stayed in fucking phenomenal shape. Oh, he's a great he's a actor. Uh, what, what in uh, the untouchable or expendables? Expendables, expendables. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, dude. His fucking car, like his, like, and, and I use the term cardio, like not in a uh, fucking exercise bike kind of way, but just like yeah. his capacity to suffer in terms of like aerobic capacity was always so high. And that dude was always like showed up and sh- like he was what like fifty something last time he fought, and the guy looked yeah. fucking better than the guys in their twenties. Yeah, yeah. That comes with I think. Um, uh, Picking wrestling <laughs> over something else. Uh, I, I will continue to say that um, if I could go back in time, that's the one I would pick up purely to develop the habit of that kind of work ethic. And that's what you see with a lot of wrestlers. I mean, motor forever. Um, when their skills dissipate, um, people like Randy Couture who are smart uh, and skilled strikers in, in some respect, but man, if they're going to take you down, and that's what they want to do. You get smarter as you get older because you realize some of your weapons are, might deteriorate. You just put a guy in, the, in your deep water and see if they can survive. And if they can, terrific. Then good for them. Um, but somebody like Randy who's, who's intelligent and other, and other fighters who are just trying to stick around, I mean, that's going to be the game plan. Get the guy to play my game because in this space, I will dominate. And then you don't need to be able to punch <laughs> Is that, that something much, that like if uh, like a fighter comes to you and like, let's say you have a guy who was a high motor dude and you bring him in and he was, you know, uh, you know, real skilled and all of a sudden now he's having injuries and he's starting to wear on. Is that something that maybe you recommend or you start talking to him a little bit or you talk to the coach and be like, I don't know if the game that he had in his 20s is the game he's going to be able to do in his 30s into his 40s and the smart ones to continue to, to evolve. And it feels like yeah. the guys that I've seen in the UFC um, who haven't evolved their game. It's just age out of that style. Like, you know, like the, like the clay Guida, who's just going to fucking chase you around and sprint you run, you know, run you into the fucking ground. Like, can that dude do that into his thirties and forties? But we see that in football as well with quarterbacks, one style, they get away with running around. And then when they take some hits, then they're forced to learn actually how to throw. Yeah. That comes, I think from having a nice cohesive team, right? A team of uh, coach and, strength coach and therapist and whoever else you've got in the mix really communicating with one another, but understanding the game we're talking about here. Um, you know, of course your striking coach is going to know what that's about. Um, he might not understand what's going on on the hip joint or the whatever. It doesn't really matter, but if everyone's talking the same language, then you can help someone evolve their game to the place where they can do it for as long as their body would allow. Um, so yeah, you have those conversations about, well, that might not be your wheelhouse now, but it's okay because you're a wrestler, 
you still have this as a base, and it's not likely that person's going to be able to stop you from taking them down. So we're going to lean heavily, more heavily on that. Okay, well, it hurts when I do X, Y, or Z. Okay, cool. Let's get it so that that can be maintained for as long as possible because our game plan will now be shifting to making the person play your style. Um, and so that comes from communication, and, and the athletes got to buy in. But people who do it for a long time understand that that's the way it's all going to go. The ones who are hard-headed or lazy or whatever, I'm going to just do it the way I want to do it. All right then your career is going to reflect that those decisions. And unless you are extremely gifted or very lucky, you're probably not going to have as long a career as some other people. What, um, so, I mean, obviously we're, we've been talking a lot about the training, but like where does the nutrition piece and hydration and all those other kind of that low hanging fruit fit into your scheme? I mean, that's, uh, that is along with all the questioning that we do with anyone who comes in. Right. So we want to know what their baseline level of, uh, self care is. Um, you can talk to people about uh, anti-inflammatory diets. You can talk to them about supplementation. You can talk about macros all you want. Um, but you're going to get a good sense as to whether or not that person has uh, uh, the idea that this is fuel. This is what's going to make me go. And this is gonna, it's what's going to help me repair. Um, so I fortunately don't have to like beat guys up for drinking water. I mean, every one of them carries like a 75-ounce bottle with them when they're coming here to work out. Um, and so – uh, I've been fortunate in that, but for folks who are the enthusiasts to see those folks uh, competing at a high level and want to do some of those things, I say, well, look, this is what they're doing. It's actually a very easy sell. Um, making sure our sleep hygiene is what we want, making sure the time between training sessions is right, making sure your what you're doing for tissue regeneration uh, is on point, and that a lot of times is just you know solid basic nutrition. Um, finding places you're deficient and supplementing in those places. You don't necessarily have to take all the supplements, um, but understanding where those things fit into a more cohesive, singular kind of care for yourself as an athlete, that's important. And that part that comes with the education and getting to know everyone kind of on a one-off basis. And coaches help a ton with that because they've all been in those scenarios. And like you were saying earlier, they box people up. This guy is a, I don't know, this guy does not like cutting weight. All right, we're going to spend some time understanding why, why we do that, and maybe we keep him around a certain place. This guy's got knee issues, and we've got to ta- either tailor conditioning or tailor his game or tailor parts of rehab to get the most out of, out of that orange. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an important piece. Uh, it's something we cover quite a bit, uh, but it's, it's not groundbreaking stuff. I mean, you ask a stranger on the street, what things should you eat, what things should you drink, how much? The fattest one out there is going to tell you the right answers. Whether they do any of it is completely their <laughs> choice. Like, but they all know. So I got to just reinforce it. And when people come in who want to be competitive, they, their guard comes down quicker. They go, yeah, okay, yeah, I know you're right. Let's, let's, let's give it a shot if it is actually a problem. But I've been fortunate to have some pretty dedicated and motivated people come in. Yeah, I can't imagine if somebody's in the, you know, trying to be a professional athlete. I mean, at least in the fight game, like those guys are, that's just the foundation. I mean, you, you look back at boxing. I mean, why did those guys do road work? Because fucking nobody else was doing it. And those guys are out there running three and four in the morning. So I just wonder if that's the mentality. Um, and maybe part of the deal is being able to provide those guys just, you know, new information. Here's what you're doing. This is how you're setting it up and just kind of evolve this from yeah. something that, 
you know, like fucking backyard fights or what the early uh, UFC was into bum, this thing. Bum fights. <laughs> bum, oh, like, bum well, fights. Uh, no, it was uh, Kimbo Slice. You <laughs> yes. remember like the backyard yeah. fights? I, I mean, that's where he started. That's bump, that was bum that fights. That wasn't bum no, fights. No, that wasn't bum fights. That was bum a different thing. Bum fights was when they used to pay the <laughs> bums to fight each other with like, for, like sandwiches. They were like, we got yeah. two subways if you, and these dudes are hitting each other oh. with their shoes. Kimbo Slice used to legit go back and do that bare knuckle fucking boxing right, deal. What was yeah. it called though? Like this is the dawn of YouTube. Ah, uh, like fucking, I don't know. Did they have a we promotion name? I don't think so. No, it was like a dude with a video camera, and then Kimbo Slice, who uh, you know ended up. I was glad that they got him into the UFC and let him, yeah. you know, because he was like this fucking internet folklore oh, yeah. legend. He was like you know the Bubba Yega, the fucking internet, and yeah. actually get him in. And he he didn't have a great start, but he ended up being all right. And then I think he since yeah. passed away. Oh, uh, he had a passable MMA career. Yeah. I was actually impressed with the ability he was able to show. I mean, I thought for sure there was that one fight where he fought. Um, oh, goodness. I can see the face, but I can't remember the name now. But it was one of the most sloppy heavyweight fights I've ever seen. By the end of like the oh, first 60 seconds, their arms that? were hanging. You know the fight. And it was embarrassing to watch, but you just couldn't tear yourself away. Uh, um, was it? But um, it, while you're looking that up, to go, to, to, you know, it, it's an uh, interesting thing because it's part for me like an, a similar vein in the embrace the suck thing. Sometimes eating real, real well is just not fun. So are you willing to do the things that set you apart from the people who just want to eat the good thing, drink the yummy thing, sleep whenever they want, screw whoever they want? Like, all right, man, there are consequences with these things. And if you want to be somebody everyone remembers... Was it uh, Kimbo Grace versus uh, Dad at Five Thousand? Yes, that's <laughs> it. <laughs> With the red mohawk. Oh that fuck! I remember seeing it, and they came out atrocious. <laughs> they threw like three so punches, bad. and then they just started yeah. like. Huh, huh, huh. Uh, I mean, watching that fight, I was out of breath. Like I couldn't believe how gassed <laughs> these two guys were. It was embarrassing, but man. Um, at least Kimbo put together a couple fights where he was able to show off some of the things he does well. Uh, R.I.P. Kimbo. <laughs> Oh, man. So what's the future? Like, um, I mean, as this thing, I mean, it, it's pretty interesting when when sports all of a sudden get enough money attracted around them. And I think the UFC is a really interesting one because uh, Dana White and, the, and uh, what is it? Uh, the Vertita brothers have kept mm-hmm. such a fucking stranglehold on it. I mean, like, uh, you know, like Conor McGregor is one of the only guys I've ever seen really kind of push the envelope. And I wonder mm-hmm. as more money and more notoriety and this thing kind of grows almost into something that's, you know, as big as the NFL, like what, it, like what, what's the evolution for this deal? Um, I think you're going to see a lot of a similar evolution as, um, as football has seen somewhat recently with care um, uh, taken to protect from head strikes, protect from excessive cuts I don't know the rules. I, like I said earlier, I, I think there are some easy solutions to limit the kind of beating people are putting on themselves that is not necessary, like really big weight cuts, like constantly getting hit in the head. Um, but I think uh, as more uh, next-gen PT folks come out, as more people uh, with a sports conditioning and skills development background in a physical medicine capability can get the ear of some of these people and take the difficult literature and the evidence and that clinical experience and distill it down to like, here are the actionable things we can do to make this safe. Um, that's going to be the change. That's when you're going to see healthier fighters, better fights, fewer missed cuts, uh, fewer um, big nasty injuries that are preventable because of how we're treating people. But I don't know that it's imminent yet. I mean, hell, I'm 
started this conversation talking about how people leaving PT programs right now are ill-equipped for this job, unless you just sort of by chance have experience in it. Um, but it's happening more and more. More people are practicing physical therapy and chiro and training in this sort of way than has ever been. And uh, fortunately, I'm not the only voice on this kind of stuff. I'm on how to change how you how we practice every day. Um, but it starts from this. When, when those guys are just enthusiasts or just amateurs and you develop those habits and you talk to coaches and you develop um, a foothold in a community that sees the results of what you're doing, making their athlete better, more competitive and for longer, that's when this pendulum will be fully swung in the direction of, of letting um, – letting the chains off of the kind of conditioning that we can, we can do and uh, rehab and tissue regeneration and all that kind of stuff that we do every day. Um, that's coming. I don't know if it's soon though. Is there going to have to be a change in the PT schools? I mean, uh, at, at what point are they going to actually teach PTs how to lift weights? And I know that's, uh, that's kind of a, I mean, we, we've had uh, through the power athlete methodology, we've had some really high level PTs come to us yep. because they were like, you know what, we need a, you know, like a method, more like a, a, a blueprint to work from in terms of strength training. And mm -hmm. it blew my mind where I was like, so wait a minute, one of the, the greatest tools we have in terms of like overloading the body and developing strength and power and challenging posture and position in different movement planes is lifting weights. And yet they're not teaching that at, you know, as a doctor of PT, you have no experience in that. And they're like, yes. Sure. I'm like, that's sure. insane to me. Yeah. Um, the the uh, counter argument I always get is, well, there's a lot of the MPTE exam. That's the uh, National Physical Therapy Examination, the licensing exam for PTs when they get done with school. And that if we take this chunk of your curriculum out, well, we're not preparing you for the test. I'm like, well, then change the test. Right. Because the test is ridiculous. Like, Frankly, I could go take it today and probably not do very well because what I do in clinical practice is so different than what you must know to pass that exam. Um, so it might take somebody like me. I mean, maybe not me because I've got enough to fucking do, uh, but who um, has a similar background to take some form of a leadership position and start saying, hey, listen, why aren't we preparing physical therapists for the challenge that they're actually facing every day? It's not important to know that the crystal inside of an ultrasound head is piezoelectric. Another big word for you. <laughs> Literally a question on the MPTE, and I've never uttered that phrase in my 15 years of work. So there you go. That's what, they, that's what you need to know. You need to know how to apply a hot pack. Fucking, this is not skilled stuff. But yes, the amount of time you're allowed to put a hot pack on, the number of coverings you need to put on it, uh, you need to take into account the person's age because of the insensitivity to temperature. Yes, these are questions on the exam, and you need to know them. But they could be gone from the exam, and we would still be able to do physical therapy. But you can't do physical therapy to the greatest benefit of every client if you're not loading them, whether it's a bar, a dumbbell, a bell, a kettlebell. Um, so when that change happens and we see the importance of shifting our focus away from the test and toward the people you're going to see, that's when you're going to see more next gen, PE, next gen PTs come out. Um, again, prob maybe not in my career. I hope these kinds of conversations start that kind of thing. And when students come here to do training with us, because uh, we see rotations all the time for physical therapy students, um, they go, this is different. This is what I want to do. I'm like, okay, cool. If I have to do it one at a time for the next 20 years, then that'll be how it has to happen. Well, you know, every revolution starts with a single thought and a single person. Okay. So I got one more question. A on fun him. one for us, Carlos. In your opinion, 
What is the best combat sports movie? Uh, we at Power Athlete are big fans of the Vision Quest. <laughs> well, that's just because okay. we had Matthew Modine on the podcast. Not but, just. So, but, I mean, we got Van Damme movies. You got. Oh, uh, don't uh, do that. You're going to steal my thunder. <laughs> uh, okay. No, I will. Uh, Steven Seagal. You could be a big Steven Seagal guy. Uh, um, so, we're not talking about uh, accuracy, are we? Uh, hey, your opinion. Anything where anybody's getting punched. Blood sport. The OG Bloodsport movie, Van Damme. Uh, I could watch that on a loop. <laughs> it's so awesome. But it's so, parts of it now are so funny that it's like I'm watching an episode of Seinfeld. It's just so great. But Bloodsport's one of my favorites. I, I, yeah, no, I, I, I love it. I mean, and I'll, I'll tell you, I'm not a Steven Seagal fan because I think he's such a douchey individual. But <laughs> some of those original Van Damme, I mean, uh, Seagal movies are fucking genius. He's just like doing these Aikido, like, like I, I like when you watch him, like I, I forgot the one where he's in like the pool, uh, like with the pool tables and he basically puts the pool cue or the pool ball in like the towel and he's hitting those dudes in the face with it. And he's like hits the dude in the face and he stands up, which if somebody hit you in the oh face my, with a pool ball, or like, like a cue ball, you'd be fucking dead. And then yeah. he's, he, he's doing those like Akita, uh, uh, Akito, uh, like locks and throws. And he's fucking torquing those dudes. And all I'm thinking is those stuntmen had to break their fucking arms. Like, there's no way that dude walks away without, like, like there's no nice way to do that shit. No. And he's fucking, like, torquing them, and you see him spinning. I'm like, oh, that guy busted his wrist. And I'm just thinking, like, the carnage that they paid these stunt <laughs> guys to fucking go through to let this fucking maniac, uh, you know, fucking narcissistic crazy fucker just break their wrists. I'm in. How many takes, you think? Uh, one. 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 Like, <laughs> like, there's, there's no way that, he's, that, that those guys are getting up from some of those throws. And like, if you've ever done any of that stuff, and I've done a little bit of that, like uh, I used to train in Hopkido and some of that stuff, and some of those breaks, dude, when they throw you, you're like, I'm not fucking getting I, up in this. I, I've listened to some people like talk about filming football scenes and beating each other up, like from some background on any given Sunday. But then movies like, have you seen Fighter, Carlos? The not seen uh, that one. Tom Hardy. No, it's, wasn't that called Tom Hardy? Wasn't that called Warrior? Warrior. My bad. Fighter is so, uh, Christian Bale and oh, he's great. Uh, Marky Mark about a, a Boston. So, fighter. so in that movie, okay. Warrior, the guy that he fights, uh, the one guy, the Mad Dog, the guy with the mohawk that's uh-huh. got the tattoo, that's Eric Apple. That uh-huh. was one of the guys I used to uh, used to wrestle or fucking do MMA with, um, jujitsu. When I was in Orange County, when I was playing, and when that movie came out, I was like, "Oh shit, dude! You got, like nobody wants to be the punk in the movie who just what, gets fucking lit up." And dude, he did. Freaking ask him because I'm just curious about the takes and how many reps it was. I mean, for him to just constantly, all right, the same move, get your ass beat. Uh, Eric was a good fighter. Yeah, he. I mean, he was pretty skilled individual. So I mean, but yeah, I I'm mean. just curious. And have you seen the new Karate Kid show at all? Yeah, I love that show. I do too. <laughs> I'm so into that, and I feel bad for Johnny now. <laughs> well, I, uh, you know what? Like, if you go uh, back and watch the original movie, I'm like, wait, we got this backwards. Like, <laughs> Ralph Macchio's a fucking asshole the whole time. He's doing all the wrong things. Dude. Like, okay. I'm with you. And, 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 and here's the Justice thing. Justice like, for Johnny. <laughs> like, they never gave, like, the backstory, like, the dad and, like, his mom and Crease and the whole thing. And now you see the backstory, and you're like, hey, that Johnny, he turned out all right. You know, he's a good yeah. dude. And, uh, yeah. and I, I think what they did is they purposely wrote that to try to make Daniel the bad guy, which I'm totally in. Well, the, I, the writers are from Harold and Kumar and Hot Tub Time Machine. Uh, so you know it's good. Uh, <laughs> serious. Have you, uh, I do love Hot Tub Time Machine. Have you guys seen the uh, cut scene from Cobra Kai? Uh, the jujitsu scene? 
Look no. that up. It's a fun one. It's like 30 seconds. Apparently, he's opening his gym, like literally opening the doors to go into his gym. And there's a next door is a jujitsu gym. And he cuts off two kids that are going in. And he's like, hey, this Brazilian bullshit, you need some old-fashioned American karate, which is hysterical, yeah, yeah, just yeah. saying it like that, right? And then the jujitsu guys come out, two of which, like one's a black belt, one's a, a, I don't know, white belt, but it's a black dude. And he goes, do I need to help you, Master Ken? And he goes you make your students call you master? He's like, <laughs> stop calling me master. And he's it was fucking hysterical. I don't know why they cut it, because it's terrific. He's like, jujitsu's here forever, man. Um, well, but yeah, the fact it's my claim. That they threw Master Ken out there. Well, I don't know if you know who Master Ken is. Yes, of course. He's great. Oh my God. So so he's a dude. Uh, he's He's got a big YouTube channel. I've seen him oh, on- Oh, you've not on, seen Master Ken Tech? Jeez, no. you gotta see Oh, that. dude, you gotta look him oh. up. So he does these uh, like uh, martial arts spoofs. And it's like his whole thing is stomp the groin. So like, <laughs> and stop the groin. So he's like, you do like, uh, dude, I, I follow oh, him. I yeah. can't stop laughing. He's got the mustache oh, so and the whole thing. And he like, um, Tony Blower, uh, was on the podcast and Tony Blower talked that, that they're good friends and nobody knows him by his real name other than master Ken. So he's, he, he had him on the podcast. He's like, I got to call you master Ken. Nobody's going to know who the fuck you are. Yeah, the best is dude. he has like actual like pros on his videos nowadays. <laughs> Like, uh, I can't ever think of what Hannah Grace has been in. So I'm like, it's so good. It's it's a great shtick. Yeah, no, it's great. Uh, so apparently he's got a book that, a book? By, and it's The Tao of Master Ken by 11th awesome. Degree Black Belt. <laughs> Dude. Which I know nothing, and I know that doesn't exist. So. Uh, I'm sure funny. somewhere in some weird kind of, like, level thing there's that. But the problem is, is that you have to test with, like, for you to get your next level of black belt, right. you have to test with a higher level of black belt. So there means that there has to be like a 12th level black belt mm -hmm. to give you your 11th, I guess. So at that point, they're probably just gifting him being like, well, we want to get a 10. So let's give this guy an 11. All right. And, and I don't make any money from this, but this is a terrific one for uh, your listeners. If they just have time to burn. Um, are you familiar with Hanato Laranja? It's actually spelled Reynato Laranja, right? Well, so he's it's obviously Brazilian. Right. Renato. But his whole shtick is... He's like a 30 Don black belt and he has this, it's very satirical, but if you watch him in his videos, he's legit. He, he has, he had a video. One of my favorites is with him and Chris Weidman's It's before a fight. Weidman's is getting a chair interview and the Ronda comes over and he's like, I'll oh, fuck you up. And he's pointing at him and Chris Weidman says, don't fucking point at me. And Weidman's suplexes this guy to hell. And he, within five seconds, he's getting choked out. And I'm like, this guy's real. But the whole shtick about, like, I got all these babies, I fucked your... <laughs> Sorry. Uh, oh, you it's really profanity. hysterical. Look it up. Uh, Renato Laranja, every one of his videos is gold. Okay. Uh, but if you like this satirical, kind of make fun of the art stuff, it's another really good... good well, one. I mean, the one that was I thought was satirical that ended up not being was when um, Anderson Silva fucking caught... Uh, um, uh, shit. I'm totally forgetting his name. Uh, the dude we worked with... Um, uh, caught him with the front kick and knocked him out. And then all of a sudden, Seagal's in the back being like, fucking karate, you know, I taught him that <laughs> kick. And I'm like, holy shit, Steven Seagal taught Anderson Silva a fucking front kick to the face. Like, I I'm like, I don't know who's fucking punking who. This whole thing feels like a troll to me. Yeah, yeah. There are good videos of, of Seagal uh, and Silva training with one another and i have nothing but respect for anderson silva yeah. he's a freaking oh. legend every bit of his game is amazing, amazing. his whole life is amazing um but the kind of respect he shows to steven seagal who's showing him just utter bullshit <laughs> 
Why is why? is so admirable. I'm like, he's all called, right, man. He, Good dude, for you. He's brought Seagal in. He's going to learn some do you think gold like, ladder points and go for it. It's great. Uh, okay, so I'll, I'll ask you this question. Do you think that Seagal's whole, like, so I always thought Seagal was all bullshit. I thought the whole thing was a fucking facade. Yeah. But then all of a sudden you got Anderson Silva who, I mean, the spider, like, one of the best. <laughs> Like yeah. Muay Thai, I mean, just unbelievable. Like he, he, he was the boogeyman for a lot of people. Yes. And, and I mean, until he got his leg broken, which to this day still might be the fucking craziest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, and then he has Seagal come in and is giving him respect. And you're like, no, this can't be accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that just speaks to me about Anderson Silva, you know, like whether he invited him in. Yeah. He's Hey, he's probably just a nice guy, first of all. Secondly, it's like, well, look, if Steven Seagal can teach me one thing, I'll have him in here with his badly dyed hair and his big-ass <laughs> belly. Like, go ahead. But it was complete bullshit. And, Seagal, and, and Anderson was – and actually, I know Anderson Silva's PT personally. He's a good friend of mine. And so he's there with them, and he's telling me, like, this, this is garbage. Like, this is such <laughs> shit. But Anderson would never say this. And so – you know, we had a session, and uh, it's it's widely available on YouTube. Yeah. You can definitely yeah, no, find it. it. Um, and I think it just says what a cool dude Anderson Silva is to let the little kid play in his backyard and not. <laughs> what do you think happened? I mean, because he, I mean, he was a Muay, or he, yeah, I mean, he's a Muay Thai guy, yeah, and those yeah. guys have fucking shins like steel posts. How does he break his leg? I mean, there must have been a stress fracture. There must have been an sure. injury lingering or something to yeah. have him shatter his leg like that is insane yeah yeah there is uh he's not the only one ever having an injury like that i mean there are some very graphic uh pictures of guys uh happened actually about three or four years ago in an mma fight with another guy who was uh, really long but was fighting at like 140 i mean he was like a six four the name is, is not coming to me right now but he was actually a contestant on one of the tough shows um so i mean a real fighter, but super long. But anytime those kinds of things happen, as a as a someone who thinks about things from a more sports medicine side, you go, there must have been a defect. Yeah. There must have been a bone bruise. There must have been something going on there because that doesn't happen often. Well, um, I mean, but you like, don't find out it's the there. MMA guy. Until too late. I mean, uh, like a Muay Thai guy. I mean, like that's the basis of their training. Yeah. You know, yeah. with like you know rubbing the baseball bats and the shin and like you know. You know you got to think how much of that type of focus is spent on somebody like Anderson Silva, who's done the Muay Thai um, at the highest level for that long. You know, he's probably not doing baseball back conditioning to his shins. He's probably hitting a heavy bag with his, with his low kicks and all that. Um, but, you know, you get hurt in, in, a, in a camp, you suffer a minor injury, you don't think it's a big deal, and it just takes – I mean, the shearing force necessary to break your tibia is not a lot. Really, it's sort of strikingly a little bit of load. Oh, okay. um, so compared to other ways to fracture your legs, um, it's rare. But uh, not an enormous surprise when you think of the kind of power they're throwing out there. And if someone checks a kick, you're hitting someone else's pretty hard chin with your pretty hard chin moving very fast. Well, what, so things like that can happen. What blew me away was it was his left leg, and I'm actually watching the video. He kicks the dude's other leg and the guy blocks it with the inside of his shin right and broke his leg which completely i mean it, it, it should be a calf kick i mean right. you know he's, he's trying to like you know deaden the calf and man yeah. that was a that, that was one of those that i was like man i would have never thought this would happen in a million years yeah that that speaks to two things like descending inhibition because the fun part was his leg wrapped around the other guy's shin yeah yeah Oof. came back 
And then Anderson went to step back on that leg and just fell. But he didn't realize that had happened for like a full second or so. And that tells you like what happens when you're in the moment. You know, you're fighting. You're, you can't think about these, these insults until now I have time because we've stopped the fight. But that's something pretty cool that a lot of people don't have either. The ability to, I'm going to try and step back on this. And then they took him into surgery. While Joe Rogan screams, stop the fight. I mean, they took him into surgery. They put steel rods. They put plates, a whole deal. And then he came back too. Oh, yeah. He's been fighting. He's had several. I mean, what to me is like, I I see that and I think career ending, like the Joe Namath deal. And Mm -hmm. fucking for him to come back just, I mean, it just proves that that guy is as, uh, you know, legendary as he, you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know. Tough, tough. Well, I mean, it's kind of, at least for me in the MMA game, like there's people like Anderson Silva and, um, you know, uh, Crow Cop and, uh, you know, all those guys. I mean, uh, who's the other guy? Um, uh, The Russian dude who with the bad body. Um, I know exactly what you're about. Um, I'm blanking on my name. Fedor. Yeah, yeah, Fedor. I mean, yeah, like, yeah, I you. you know, these guys that were just like absolutely just monsters within it. And I think like there's, you know, been these guys and, uh, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty cool to look back and see, you know, like if, if Fedor's name was on there, I was going to get the pay-per-view. Oh, yeah. And then he comes out there and it's just like, <laughs> and then like, you know, he kind of like kind of kind of frumpy. And you're like, oh, dude, and he would just murder people. Yeah. Oh, he was absolute savage. Um, and no one understood why. <laughs> It's like, how is this guy going to compete? But he would so physically dominate his opponents. Yeah. Um, and it would be from weird places. From the bottom, it would be in – he knocks someone out in, in his own closed guard. Yeah. Like, how the hell does that even happen? Yeah, off his back. Uh, kind of just a special person. So, again, this is like every, every sport, but this is a good example. If you're going to lack something that we would consider criterion-level ability, you better be special in something else. Real special, and Fedor was one of those guys. Yeah, awesome. Well, hey, um, where can people get a hold of you? Like, mm-hmm. if uh, they're interested in learning more, they want to reach out. They're a, a PT who's seeking for knowledge, or an MMA guy, or just somebody that wants to work with you. How do people get a hold of you? Yeah, man, thanks. I'm uh, I'm uh, pretty active on social media, so our Instagram at BJJ Physio. Uh, we've got a Facebook presence as well. We our website uh, will be launched here probably within the month. That's the uh, the BJJ uh, BJJ Physio with a hyphen, so BJJ hyphen physio.com. But if you hit us up on Instagram and Facebook, you'll see messages about that. Uh, I answer everybody constantly. I, I really love talking about this stuff. I really enjoy meeting uh, physical therapists and other sports medicine pros who want to see this kind of athlete. Um, because again, I can't help everyone. So the, the focus right now is to get content out uh, that everyone can access, whether you're from Canada or you're from Lincoln, Nebraska, um, to begin understanding what's going on and see that there are solutions. And like I said, you can Google my elbow hurts and you'll find a list of problems that are likely what's going on with you. But man, the internet is weird about giving you actionable solutions. And that's what this site is about. And that's what my presence right now is about is look, you don't have to stop training. You don't have to quit MMA. You don't have to quit jujitsu. Um, let's teach you how to optimize what's going on in your healing, how to reload things. And while you're doing those things, here are a bunch of other things that you can do to continue to stay on the mat and competitive and, and doing that thing. So yeah, find us on Instagram, find us on Facebook, and uh, be on the lookout for the website. It's going to be pretty cool. And to, to pay you a compliment on the Instagram, the, the videos you're putting out, it's you on a mat, speaking to the athlete, using the, the actions within the sport, and then telling them what the hell is going on. So compliments. Yeah. Cheers to that, man. And thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you.
Yeah, it was a pleasure, man. I really appreciate talking to you guys. Well, if you're ever in the Austin area, man, look us up and, and we'll look Absolutely. you up as well. Love to love to connect in person. So, well, that's great. You, thank you, Power Athlete Nation, for another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Condition. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You heard Dr. Barrio. He is all up on Instagram at BJJ Physio. And watching some of his videos will definitely make you demand a bit more from your current PT. Until next time, bye!